This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 92nd episode of the program. Today is April 28th, and before we get into the news, I want to take a moment to thank these individuals for deciding to support the podcast either by becoming Patreon patrons or signing up to be a member on HumanistReport.com or donating to us via PayPal. So each and every single one of these individuals deserves recognition because without you... This show could not survive, and especially at a time when YouTube is demonetizing news and politics. You guys literally saved us this last month. So, towards the end of the episode, I will be taking the time to thank each and every single one of you. But before we do that, we're going to go ahead and get into the news topics. So, on today's episode, first of all, I'm going to talk about the FCC's plans to roll back net neutrality and what you can do to stop it. And additionally, I'll talk about how Google is also planning to censor content as well. Now, additionally, Bernie Sanders is under attack by the corporate media, but in spite of that, he's still fighting for us. So he's going to be introducing bills to raise the minimum wage to $15 per hour, and he's also looking to introduce a bill in the Senate to expand Medicare to everyone. I'll also talk about how a Medicare for All bill is being floated in California, the DNC fraud lawsuit, and Trump's plans to cut his own taxes and strip citizens of health care. And finally, I will speak with Newslog's Caitlin Johnstone, and she's going to talk about Donald Trump, Julian Assange, and more. So all these topics will be discussed in today's episode. I certainly can't promise that this news will make you happy. But unfortunately, these are the stories that we have to deal with right now, and it's all just incredibly demoralizing, but nonetheless, we're going to fight through it, and we are going to arm ourselves with knowledge and information about what's happening so that way we can combat the harmful agenda of Donald Trump and the Republicans, as well as the FCC. So let's go ahead and jump right in. This week, we got horrifying news from the FCC. So, Chairman Ajit Pai revealed plans to roll back net neutrality, effectively killing the internet as we know it, ceding full control of the internet to a couple of corporations, which would allow them to throttle the bandwidth of any website they want to and kill off any competition that threatens their outdated business model. So according to The Hill, during a speech at the museum in Washington, D.C., Pai said he plans to hand regulatory jurisdiction of broadband providers back to the Federal Trade Commission, an agency that critics argue is less prepared to handle them. Originally passed under Democrat Tom Wheeler's chairmanship, the net neutrality rules, more formally referred to as the Open Internet Order of 2015, set restrictions on internet service providers prioritizing certain kinds of web traffic and throttling others. The rules were broadly aimed at establishing a level playing field for the companies on the internet. Broadband companies quickly praised Pi's proposal. We applaud FCC Chairman Pai's initiative to remove this stifling regulatory cloud over the internet, AT&T said in a blog post. 
businesses large and small will have a clearer path to invest more in our nation's broadband infrastructure under Chairman Pai's leadership. Broadband provider Charter Communications also expressed support for net neutrality principles. Charter support for an open internet is an integral part of our commitment to deliver a superior broadband experience to our customers. Charter CEO Thomas Rutledge said that will never change. Notably, Pi did not once utter the phrase net neutrality during his remarks, opting to refer to the principles as the open internet. Pi's proposed reforms will tackle one of the most controversial portions of net neutrality, the reclassification of broadband providers as common carriers, which gives the FCC the authority to regulate them. Broadband service providers such as AT&T, Comcast, and Verizon have hammered these rules, arguing they are unnecessary and that the FCC should not regulate them. The FCC will release the full text of its Notice of Proposed Rulemaking on Net Neutrality Thursday, which will be voted on at the May 18th FCC open meeting. Should it pass, the public will be able to file comments on the proposal. A 2014 poll by the University of Delaware Center for Political Communication found that 81% of consumers supported net neutrality provisions. So Ajit Pai is going against the overwhelming majority of American citizens at the behest of companies like Comcast, Charter, and Verizon, who he used to work for. He was an attorney for Verizon. And it's very Orwellian that he keeps referring to this as open internet because right now the internet is free and open. But if these rules actually come to light and get passed, the internet would no longer be free and open. They would be under the corporate control of about four or five different companies. So the current rules mandate that all web traffic is treated the same, so neutrality, and this gives consumers equal access to everything on the internet but under the new rules a number of things could happen that are horrifying so if comcast wants to kill off a company that threatens their business model they can throttle their bandwidth and this is what they did to netflix in 2014 so if a small news outlet decides to post content that comcast doesn't like they can then blackmail that website and force them to pay a hefty fee now what happens is if said website doesn't pay that fee then comcast can throttle that website's traffic and basically, unless you're a large news company or a large corporation, you're not going to be able to pay these fees that Comcast and Time Warner and Verizon will inevitably impose on you. Or what could also happen is that they can and inevitably will get more greedy and start offering tiered packages for the internet. So you'll only be able to gain access to certain types of websites if you pay for them and pay more money for them. This is an example of what could happen if net neutrality goes away. It would destroy the internet as we know it. And this threatens poor people's access to crucial information. It could cut off their access to news websites because they might not be able to afford these prices. And since ISPs have a monopoly in most regions of the country, you really have no choice but to accept their anti-consumer policies that they choose to enforce with these new rules. And it would empower them to be even more fascistic than they already are. Now, this is something that is a non-partisan issue. Again, I want to reiterate, this is a non-partisan issue. Let me re-emphasize here what's going on. Unless you are A, Verizon, B, Comcast, C, Charter, or D, AT&T, this will hurt you. Ajit Pai wants to hand control of the entire internet to a couple of companies that already proved to be anti-consumer, the most disliked companies in the country.
will now be in control of our internet. They can throttle any website that they don't want. They can set up fast lanes. So what, that way, if the humanist report doesn't pay their fee, we basically get killed off. So if you thought that independent media and just anything that's independent and free of corporate control uh, was under threat now with YouTube's demonetization nonsense, you haven't seen anything yet. And again, I want to reiterate here uh, and, and really just send a special message to conservatives. This affects you too. You need to educate yourself. You need to wake up. So currently, you know, if, if you like Breitbart and you're a fan of Breitbart, well, guess what happens? If Breitbart, who is small in comparison with uh, CNN, MSNBC, can't pay the exorbitant prices imposed on them after net neutrality is killed by Comcast, guess what happens? You no longer get to read Breitbart. That goes away as an option. It can kill independent conservative media outlets as well. Again, this is a nonpartisan issue. Both sides of the political aisle need to come together and oppose this because it's incredibly problematic. It's harmful to democracy. It really is. If you like to watch Netflix and you're a cord cutter, well, Comcast might not like that. They might want you to come back as a customer and they can blackmail you into coming back by reducing the bandwidth to Netflix or Hulu. So none of their shows actually buffer properly, which will then influence you to come back to Comcast and buy TV. Now, knowing that this day would inevitably come, I went ahead and set up a page on humanistreport.com with resources that allows you to voice your concerns to the FCC. So all the information you need to tweet, call, and email the FCC will be right here. And I would highly encourage you to bookmark this link and also bookmark the link where you can file an official complaint. And it's important that you also call them at one 225 Five three two two. Now you're gonna have to talk to a robot and follow a bunch of prompts, but if you follow prompts one four two zero, that will connect you to a person who will take your complaints. Now be polite because they're actually uh, there's a lot of people within the FCC that disagree with Chairman Pai, so they are willing to help you out and take your complaint and forward that to him. Um, but look, they vote on this May eighteenth, and you can bet that it's going to pass. And uh, there will be a period of time where the FCC will have to accept public comments on these new rules. And we've got to hit the ground running. We have to start right now emailing them, calling them every single day because this cannot stand. Because if they kill the internet by gutting net neutrality, then democracy is threatened. Because if you thought that corporate control of television media and, you know, television channels and shows was a problem and misinforms people, imagine when they take over the internet, which is the last bastion of freedom right now. It's going to be bad, so this cannot stand. And Ajit Pai, this means war. We're not going to lie down and take it. We will fight you, Ajit. The FCC's chairman, Ajit Pai, thinks that he's going to be able to hand control of the internet over to a couple of internet service providers. And what he doesn't realize is that he's about to face a huge wave of grassroots resistance. So what I wanted to talk about is what happened last time the FCC chairman tried to impose so-called fast lanes, which would effectively gut net neutrality. So Tom Wheeler was appointed by President Barack Obama, and he came from the industry. He was actually a registered lobbyist for Comcast, and he then went on to become the FCC chairman. 
And when he proposed fast lanes, when he decided to gut net neutrality, he did not know what he was getting himself into. I mean, and it's the same thing with Ajit Pai, because when you poll the American people, 81% support net neutrality. And the other 19%, I think they probably don't support net neutrality because they don't know what it means. And there's been a lot of confusion on this issue because I think that Republicans have done an excellent job lying and obfuscating the truth. I mean, when Ajit Pai talks about how he's going to gut net neutrality, he doesn't even mention the words net neutrality. He talks about how his plan will stop the government takeover of the internet and it will create a more free and open internet and will facilitate competition. But that's that's a lie. That's an outright lie. We can't even say that he's obfuscating the truth. It's It's a brazen lie. And this is because it will do the exact opposite of that. And Ajit Pai, he's the FCC chairman. He's not a dumb dude. He's pretty smart. So he knows what gutting net neutrality would do. And the reason why he wants to do it is because the industry loves Ajit Pai. He came from the industry. He served as legal counsel to Verizon. So here's what happened last time when the FCC chairman tried to gut net neutrality. The FCC faced extreme grassroots resistance and there were activists that would constantly try to disrupt FCC hearings. My name is Margaret Flowers. I'm also with popularresistance.org. In the 21st century, the internet is our free speech, but in this country, we're losing our rights to free speech. The internet was created with our public dollars as part of the public commons, and we should never have been reclassified. We need to put it back in the public space, reclassified. now one of the most disgusting things about that video was how when you look at the faces of everyone who is part of the FCC who would be voting to gut net neutrality, well, you could just see how giddy they were when each protester was escorted out. Tom Wheeler himself had a huge grin on his face along with Ajit Pai, and when you look at his Republican colleague, you could just see how happy he was. So they thought that they won. They thought that they silenced these protesters successfully by kicking them out and not allowing them to interrupt this hearing. But it wasn't over, and those protesters refused to be silenced. So, do you want to know what they did next? Well, those same grassroots protesters who were escorted out when they tried to disrupt an FCC hearing showed up to FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler's house and would not let him leave to go to the FCC. I'm sorry, but we can't let you go to work today because you work for Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, and not for the people. And so we can't let you go there because you're selling us out on internet neutrality and that's not okay with us. So we want to know which side you're stand on, up, Tom. Stand up. So, so wait a minute. I remember meeting you. Yeah, you did. Yes, you did. Good to meet you. Brian? Is that Kevin. Right? Kevin. Save the internet, Tom. Great. 
It's not good enough to be doing this hybrid crap. Reclassification you can't all the pretend. way. There's not, this is not a photo op for you to pretend like you're saving the it's, internet. We I'm know. standing here. I'm saving. Put the video on. It's we've been videotaping the whole time. No, you're not saving the internet. It's about. The people have said. Tom, the people have said. Don't let very clear the what internet they want. die. Time, Time to reclassify. Don't, Don't let the internet die. die. Time to reclassify. Don't let It's not a negotiation. Die. The people Time have said. You can't ignore the people, Tom. Thanks, guys. You can't ignore the people. Thanks. Don't let the internet die. We're sticking around. We're sticking around. We're sticking around. So what am I supposed to do? That's your problem. That's your problem. We don't think you're working for us right now. You're working for the Comcast. It's not to save Comcast. It's so. not to save Comcast. Which side are you on, Tom? I'm on your side. I'm on the Tom. Which side are you on? No, you are not. Are you with the people, Tom, or with the telecoms? Which side are you on, Tom? Which side are you on? Are you prepared to announce right now Title II? Telecom. Okay. It's been yeah, a long time. Everything's been on the Take table. Take everything else off. Title huh? two is the only people want. Okay. Yeah, ninety-nine percent of people. The process is being ignored. You have almost four million people telling you what to do, and you're ignoring them. And then your office is you're putting Comcast on. Don't mean anything. Ninety-nine percent of them were both. Gigi Stone said it earlier. Which side? I'm protecting your rights. I'm working for your rights now. No, you're working for Comcast. You're working for our rights. You do what we say. Do what the people have said. Okay. That was not protecting our interests. You're being sneaky. You're trying to sneak through ways that you can please both Comcast and fool the people I, into thinking with your whole language of I support an open internet. But no, you don't support an open internet because you're I, not siding with the people. I, I have long stated everything that's on the table. I'm working on Title II solutions included. And we you, don't want Title II solutions and included. And you are. We want full you are blocking my driveway. The people yes, have been are. clear. Prohibiting my rights. The people have been clear, Tom. So you're do I you. have a right? So I just want to. Well, do we have rights? Do we have rights to a real This is not over. It's civil disobedience. It is a violation of your technical right because for the greater good. Time to reclassify. Don't let the internet die. Time to reclassify. Don't let the internet die. This is an important issue. And, this and is an important issue, and this is a critical issue. Communications be something that is available to everyone, so we don't so do have I. to do this kind of thing. So do I. You know, in a technologically Can sophisticated I? society, we shouldn't have to I even agree. be protesting in this. I you know, agree. We're tired of oligarchy. Can I? Can We're tired I? Ninety-nine percent say reclassify. Can I get? Ninety-nine percent say reclassify. And you say you, you say a hybrid. Point. Can I get out of my driveway? You say a hybrid. We can say reclassify. It would be nice, like, if you just said that of, of all the things on your table, okay, okay, you preferred what the people preferred, which was reclassification. So, so guys, you're violating my rights. It's the only moral choice we have. 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 Can I back out? We've tried every other method of getting through. You're not working. You're not listening. We're not listening. And this is just the beginning. We're going to escalate this. So just get ready until we until you come out reclassification. It's gonna get stronger. It just goes away once you reclassify. That's it's just it's, it's just gone. You don't even need to worry about it. Four million people. This is a simple matter of making threats. Then this is a simple matter of you listening to the people. The people 
the people. Listen to the people, Tom, not Comcast. He just said. Listen to the people, Tom, not Comcast. That's a natural. That's a natural process. Yes. That you're gonna. It's not a threat. We're not gonna. We're non-violent, but we're serious about this. Listen to the people, Tom. That's all it comes down to. Thanks a lot, guys. We're done with oligarchy. So in that video, Tom Wheeler didn't have that big dumb smirk on his face now, did he? He realized that you don't just get to hand over control of the internet to a couple of large internet service providers and think you're going to get away with it. That's not what's going to happen. And what a GPI needs to understand right now is that he just declared war on the internet and hell hath no fury like the internet scorned, and he is about to feel grassroots pressure on a level that he never thought was possible. And I'll be honest, there is a chance that we might not win again like we did in 2015. And this is because, I mean, you had President Obama kind of make a more tepid endorsement of the idea of net neutrality, which signaled to Tom Wheeler that he needs to actually... Um, stop whatever plans he has to implement so-called fast lanes. We know that Donald Trump is against net neutrality, and this is contingent on the fact that he has no clue what net neutrality is. He's indicated this on numerous occasions, so we might not actually win this battle. We could lose. However, we're not going down easily, and that's what a Jeep Pie wants. He wants us to be demoralized, and he wants us to go down easily. That is not going to happen. And if you want to stop Ajit Pai from carrying out his pro-corporatist agenda, it's in your hands. Yes, you, the person watching this video, you have control. We are in for the battle of our lives. Because if we lose the internet, just like we lost television, when only a couple of corporations now own control of the three main news outlets... We'll have no access to non-biased, non-corporate information. So the internet is crucial not just for us getting information, but it's crucial for democracy now. It's been integral to uh, democracy. So there's no way we can let the internet be destroyed by Ajit Pai. So here's what we do. We fight back. Call the FCC at one 225 5322 and then press 1, then 4, then 2, and then zero, and also send Ajit Pai an email. His address is ajit.pai at fcc.gov, and you can also file an official consumer complaint and also write a letter to the Federal Communications Commission. Their address is 445 12th Street, Southwest, Washington, D.C., zip code 20554. And the important thing to keep in mind is that you can't just do these things once and then wash your hands of the situation. If we really want to have an impact and influence Ajit Pai to back off, we've got to, we've got to apply repeated pressure, a consistent level of grassroots resistance that lets him know we will not back down and we will never back down. So this is now up to us. We can't just rely on, uh, you know, our representatives and senators to do this for us. This is our fight. This is our fight because nobody's going to defend our right to a free and open internet like we can. And it's time that we fight back because this is not acceptable and it won't stand. Ajit Pai's pro-corporate agenda would serve nobody but Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, and Charter. And if you're not one of those four corporations, 
then this will hurt you. So you've got to get on board and you can't just do these things alone. You have to share this uh, with your friends, with your family. You have to let people know what's at stake here. This is the internet. If net neutrality is gone, the internet is effectively ruined. It's killed. So again, the internet now is free and open. And if net neutrality goes away, it's in the hands of large internet service providers who can throttle, who can censor, who can kill off competition uh, whenever they want to. So this cannot stand, and it's up to us. We can do this. It's going to be difficult. We might lose, but we're certainly going to give it our best shot. Tulsi Gabbard is one of the few members of Congress that continues to come out on the right side of the issues every single time without hesitation. Uh, and really, you know, this is something that's so rare that I can't help but applaud her for doing this because, you you know, there's a few allies who are actually progressives in Congress. I mean, there's Ro Khanna, there's Raul Grijalva. So anytime they speak out, we've got to applaud them. And, you know, Tulsi Gabbard, as soon as the FCC announced their rules to roll back net neutrality, she quickly took to Twitter to denounce them, saying net neutrality protects us from the corporate censorship of information. The FCC's obligation is to the people. We want an equal, open internet. Now, more importantly, she went before the House of Representatives and articulated to the world exactly why this is harmful. Yesterday, the new Trump-appointed FCC chair announced his mission to undermine the net neutrality rules that we fought so hard to put in place. In 2015, over 4 million people submitted comments calling on the FCC to keep the internet open and fair. However, the FCC's new chairman, who used to work as counsel for Verizon, wants to turn the internet into a system of pay-to-play fast lanes for big money and people can afford it, leaving everyone else behind in the slow lane. This hands the levers of access over to big ISPs at the expense of students, small businesses, entrepreneurs, independent content creators, and millions more. In today's digital age, maintaining open and equal internet access is essential to breaking down barriers in education, media, expanding access to jobs and employment, driving innovation in healthcare, and so much more. We must stand strong in opposition to the FCC's attack on fairness, equality, and net neutrality. Now, that's absolutely right. This is nothing more than pay-to-play. This is what it will devolve into at a minimum, but it's going to get worse than pay-to-play. We're going to see censorship on a new level, which is something that will stifle democracy. So I think that the implications of rolling back net neutrality, they're vast, and it's bad. Now, thankfully, Chuck Schumer and most of the Democrats have pledged to fight against this effort, and that's good because last time there were many Democrats who were just silent uh, because the last FCC chairman who tried to gut net neutrality was appointed by President Obama. So they really couldn't come out and speak out against the president's FCC chairman. But now Trump and his chairman is doing this. So, I mean, whatever, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take your help if you're going to offer it to us. But I wish you would have just been consistent. Uh, but look, this is not something that anyone should be against if you if you are against net neutrality then you don't understand it i'm convinced you don't understand it and there's a reason why 81 percent of the american people are in favor of net neutrality and it's because this is just pay to play 
Uh, this will only benefit companies like Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, and Charter. And in fact, smaller companies, including Etsy, Foursquare, GitHub, Imager, and Warby Parker, have come together to explain exactly how net neutrality will kill their companies. So the letter reads, The success of America's startup ecosystem depends on more than improved broadband speeds. We also depend on an open internet, including enforceable net neutrality rules that ensure big cable companies can't discriminate against people like us. We're deeply concerned with your intention to undo the existing legal framework. Without net neutrality, the incumbents who provide access to the internet would be able to pick winners or losers in the market. They could impede traffic from our services in order to favor their own services or establish competitors. Or they could impose new tolls on us, inhibiting consumer choice. Our company should be able to compete with incumbents on the quality of our products and services, not our capacity to pay tolls to internet access providers. Now, people will, you know, uh, retort and say, well, if they don't like this, if consumers don't like what Comcast is doing, for example, then why don't you just go to another company? <laughs> Again, you know, it's not like we didn't already think of this. We have thought of this, but there's monopolies in almost every area of the United States. And uh, if there's one area, if you're lucky enough to live in a region of the country where you have access to two broadband internet service providers, uh, then they will both align to screw over the consumers so you still don't have a choice. So this does not foster competition. It doesn't foster market growth. It will inhibit competition and inhibit market growth. But Ajit Pai here wants you to think otherwise. And the 19% of the country who doesn't know how this will hurt them specifically needs to understand that this is a huge issue that doesn't just, you know, fall on, you know, left, right. This hurts everybody equally. This is something that will hurt businesses. So if you ever thought of starting a business, good luck once net neutrality gets killed because this will destroy the internet as we know it. It won't be free and open. The reason why the internet is currently free and open is because websites are all treated the same. All web traffic is treated equally. You know, internet service providers like Charter can't throttle access to one website. All Internet traffic is treated the same. So there is no way that we can back down. So I applaud Tulsi Gabbard and I hope everyone else speaks up on the left and the right because this is an issue that nobody should uh, align with Verizon and AT&T on because if you're on the side of these internet service providers that want to kill net neutrality, you are acting against your own interest and need to wake up. You need to wake up. I got actually some pushback from conservatives on Twitter who say, oh, well, Obama just appointed Marxists, you know, um, and this is this is Lajit Pai undoing his Marxism. This isn't about that. Pull your head out of your asshole and realize what's going to happen. If you like Breitbart, if you like reading conservative news websites that are independent, good luck doing that once this actually happens, once net neutrality is killed, because this affects liberals and conservatives equally. This will affect everyone. This will harm everyone. So... The resistance has to be unequivocal and universal. In addition to the news that the FCC would soon be voting to roll back net neutrality regulations, Google simultaneously announced that they would be taking a more censorship-oriented approach 
to internet search results. So in an article for the Boston Globe titled Google Targets Fake News Offensive Search Suggestions, they explain that Google has sprinkled some new ingredients into its search engine in an effort to prevent bogus information and offensive suggestions from souring its results. The changes have been in the works for four months, but Google hadn't publicly discussed most of them until now. The announcement in a blog post Tuesday reflects Google's confidence in a new screening system designed to reduce the chances that its influential search engine will highlight untrue stories about people and events, a phenomenon commonly referred to as fake news. Besides taking steps to block fake news from appearing in its search results, Google also has reprogrammed a popular feature that automatically tries to predict what a person is looking for as a search request is being typed. The tool, called Autocomplete, has been overhauled to omit derogatory suggestions such as are women evil or recommendations that promote violence. Google is also adding a feedback option that will enable users to complain about objectionable autocomplete suggestions so a human can review the wording. Only about 0.25% of Google's search results were being polluted with falsehoods, but that was still enough to threaten the integrity of a search engine that processes billions of search requests per day, largely because it is widely regarded as the internet's most authoritative source of information. So this is incredibly troubling to me, and look, Theoretically speaking, I think most of us are in favor of fake news going away, but we're not in favor of one company basically determining what is and isn't fake news. So if somebody mischaracterizes something or frames it in a way that the government doesn't like, would Google characterize that as fake news? And now if a search result autocomplete, you know, comes up that's harmful to a brand, a corporation or a politician, Google is empowering themselves to censor it. Now, that is probably the least objectionable part of the story, but the other portion of it is that they will be doing their best to target, quote, offense, offensive content. But what is and isn't offensive is entirely subjective. How do you determine what is and isn't offensive? Because something that is offensive to me is unoffensive to someone else and vice versa. So, so how do you determine what is and isn't offensive? It's completely arbitrary. And Google is now saying that they're going to be the gatekeeper and they're going to shield our eyes from anything that might be even mildly offensive. And we know that the definition of what's offensive to Google is pretty broad because as of late on YouTube, now anything that's religious, anything that is uh, related to news and politics is considered controversial. And offensive. Hence why all of the independent news shows on YouTube are being demonetized and we are making a fourth of what we made. So this is not good news. This is exactly a form of censorship and it's something that makes Google an enemy of the truth. Now again, theoretically speaking, you know, in, in a perfect world, we would all eliminate fake news. But I don't trust Google to determine what is and isn't fake news. So if I say something that, you know, um, might be considered as offensive. So if I say that Hillary Clinton is corrupt, it's true, but it's still offensive to Hillary Clinton's supporters. So are they going to censor the humanist report? Well, they're already trying to by defunding us on YouTube. But this is something that is just, it's brazenly an act of censorship. And look, this isn't a First Amendment issue because... Google is not a democracy, you know, they are a private company, but with that being said, I do think that ideals of our constitution 
should be embodied in corporations that are so large that they actually play a role in democracy. I think Google is one of the few companies that plays a role in democracy. When we when we look for candidates and when we vote in elections, we do research on Google. We use Google as the main tool. So I think that Google needs to be transparent. They need to be open. They need to not censor anyone or anything. And what we should be doing is arming ourselves with knowledge on how to determine what is and isn't fake news. But you don't crack down on it with with censorship. There's no legislative solution to this. It's just we have to be smarter and we need to raise our standard of scrutiny and have better judgment when evaluating whether or not something is and isn't fake news. And spoiler alert, if it's fake news, you can tell pretty easily. So this is nothing but an excuse to censor content that they don't like. Google is I'm so irritated with Google lately, if you can't tell. You know, everything from the YouTube adpocalypse to uh, censorship now, it's all just so frustrating. And if they continue to take advantage of consumers and their customers, the people who make them money, there's not going to be a Google left. Now, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to predict that Google will fall under. But what I am saying is that there's going to be a competitor that will rise up and take a huge portion of Google's profits. And you can best believe that the minute that happens, when there's a YouTube competitor um, where, you know, it has enough viewers and there's a way to monetize videos, we're there. Because YouTube is just, they've run their course. They're no longer a good company. Uh, They are one of the companies that is censoring us, that is trying to stifle independent media. And it's not okay. So as you all know, Bernie Sanders supporters joined together in a class action lawsuit to sue the DNC, alleging that they defrauded Bernie Sanders supporters because according to the DNC's own charter, they are supposed to remain neutral. The DNC chair, in fact, is supposed to remain neutral. However, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, under her tenure, she created rules that disproportionately favored Hillary Clinton to the detriment of Bernie Sanders and all of Hillary Clinton's opponents. So what the plaintiffs in this case are alleging is that by donating to a candidate in a flawed, rigged, unfair primary process that the DNC organization claimed was fair was an act of fraud. Now, after this lawsuit was announced, the DNC quickly filed a motion to dismiss this case altogether. Now, the first hearing was set for this last week uh, to determine whether or not the DNC could get this motion uh, to dismiss approved by a judge. Now, this is what attorney Jared Beck had to say, who was arguing on behalf of Bernie Sanders supporters. We're very encouraged by the hearing because um, his questions uh, uh, demonstrated, a, a, in our view, um, uh, a, 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 an understanding of the claims that we're alleging in this case. Um, I think we had a very, uh, uh, I think, obviously, I think our positions are very, very strong on the law, and I think that came through at the hearing itself. Um, Now, uh, at this point, the court is going to go back and uh, prepare an order, a formal written order, on uh, the uh, motion that was filed by the DNC, and that order is going to contain uh, the decision on the DNC's uh, request to have the case thrown out. And it's also going to uh, um, contain uh, the legal reasoning and uh, principles behind the judge's decision. And he did indicate that um, it's going to take some time 
for the court to uh, uh, finalize, uh, to draft and finalize that order because of um, this, this, the number and significance of the issues involved in the case. And I'm very pleased with um, um, the hearing that we had and the opportunity to explain our position. We were given um, and, and the entire afternoon uh, uh, was reserved uh, for the hearing and it went even beyond 5 o'clock. So uh, for a motion in, in, in a case, that's you know, a, 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 a significant amount of time for a court to devote to the hearing. And that um, is something that we're happy about because it reflects what it is in our view, you know, the importance and the significance of this case uh, for American democracy. So the fact that this motion to just dismiss the case went on for so long, it went on for five hours, that's actually a good sign that the judge is taking the gravity of this case seriously. Now, throughout the course of the hearing, the DNC stooped to a new low, and what they did was was honestly something that should embarrass the DNC forever. So they literally put forth an argument to defend the DNC that is the antithesis of democracy. And again, let me remind you, the name of the Democratic Party is the Democratic Party. Democracy is literally in their name. But the lawyers put forth an anti-democratic argument to justify their decision to rig the primary. Well, at one point, um, the uh, defense lawyers uh, 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 proclaimed in open court on the record in response to one of the judge's questions that um, if they, if the defendant's language, counsel's language, DNC lawyer's language, but he said uh, that, you know, um, if the DNC wanted to, they could go into a back room and smoke cigars and pick the candidates wow. uh, over uh, cigars, I think he said, like they do in the old days, and that there would be no uh, repercussions for that from a legal standpoint. And to me, and I made this point to the court in my closing argument, uh, that's a really sad, sad statement when uh, the representative of the, Demo the Democratic Party's le uh, leadership organization, the leadership of the DNC, comes into court and actually says that we can rig uh, 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 the elections in this country uh, and you, the people, have nothing you can do about that. To me, that is a sad thing because it spells the end of democracy in uh, uh, America. And as I put it to the court, I think it puts us on a very, very dark path. Now, that wasn't the first time that the DNC's lawyers actually put forth this argument. In fact, they argued before that you know, Bernie Sanders supporters weren't actually defrauded because we knew that the primary was rigged in advance. But the problem is that that's a legally dubious argument because according to Article 5, Section 4 of the DNC's own charter, it mandates, quote, in particularly as they apply to the preparation and conduct of the presidential nomination process, the chairperson shall exercise impartiality and even-headedness as between the presidential candidates and campaigns. And then, if that wasn't enough, Debbie Wasserman Schultz is on record insisting that the DNC uh, was in fact neutral. Well, first of all, let me just reiterate again that the Democratic National Committee uh, is neutral when it comes to this primary. But she wasn't neutral. The DNC wasn't neutral. And there's a name for that. It's called fraud. If you insist that the nomination process is fair, but it actually wasn't fair, as is now evidenced by the WikiLeaks release of DNC's and John Podesta's emails, 
then that's fraud. So anyone who donated to Bernie Sanders was in fact defrauded by the DNC. And that's basically the crux of the plaintiff's argument. Now, another reason why I found the DNC's lawyer's argument so absurd is because it's obviously undemocratic. I mean, I don't have to tell you that this is undemocratic. They're honestly saying that if they wanted to, they were entitled to have a bunch of bigwigs of the party sit behind closed doors with cigars and just outright choose the Democratic candidate. So in other words, they are literally arguing for a system that is like the Iranian election system where a bunch of mullahs get behind closed doors and pick who is acceptable to run in the presidential election. That is not acceptable. And they're shamelessly putting forth this argument and it's part of the public record. That's not okay. And we're supposed to unite behind the DNC when we hear an argument from their attorneys like this. Now, the new DNC chair briefly admitted that the primary was rigged, but then he immediately retracted that statement. And there's since been no leader within the DNC or Democratic Party actually admit that the primary was in fact rigged, even though WikiLeaks gave us undeniable evidence that that was in fact the case. So the problem is that if no one within the Democratic Party's leadership and the DNC's leadership is willing to admit that the 2016 primary was rigged, well then they're most likely going to do it again if there's no accountability. But if you get accountability, if you admit it, if you admit that it was rigged and we hold the people responsible for the rigging accountable, then it's not going to happen again. So since the DNC and the Democratic Party's leaders are unwilling to hold people accountable, Debbie Wasserman Schultz was promoted after she resigned uh, in Hillary Clinton's campaign. She literally became the honorary co-chair on the same day that she was forced to resign in shame. She was promoted. So there's been no accountability. And this case is a way that we can finally get accountability. Now, the DNC has to pay up. It's the only way there can be justice. It's the only way that we can be guaranteed that it won't happen again because if they have to pay a large price, if they're sued, then they're going to be a lot more reluctant to rig the primaries ever again. And it's not just because they may be paying a hefty price, it's because this would embarrass them forever. It would be a blemish on the party's history forever. Now, just how much restitution will be paid if we do win this case? Well, I'm gonna share a clip from Nico House who was there for the hearing. This is a big deal. Right, which is why the news isn't covering it. <laughs> this is why CNN and MSNBC isn't covering this. Like, I think a multi-million dollar lawsuit for if the DC law statute is applied in this motion, which we'll know after the motion is you know taken care of and concluded, this would be three times the restitution. This would be three times what we were originally suing for. So you're talking about like close to $400 million. Who's going to write that check for them? Who knows? $400 million. So um, the fact that they're not covering this shows a lot. It, shows, it, t it tells you a lot. It tells you what they're scared of. It tells you, you know, it, it tells you that, that, that we're on the right track because usually when they're not covering something, that's a big deal. Uh -huh. <laughs> it usually means we're doing the right thing. So the DNC, they may have to pay big time because of their brazen attempt to undermine democracy and violate their own rules and violate the, the bylaws and the charter of the DNC. 
So they lied to us, they defrauded us, and they may, they may now have to pay. Now, if they do in fact have to pay $400 million, you know, that's chump change to them because one of their billionaire donors can foot the bill easily. But what they're mostly going to be paying uh, for is just public humiliation. This will be embarrassing for them. Now, Nico also points out a really important point. He talks about how the media is refusing to cover this. They have no interest in covering this because this would be bad for the Democratic Party. It would be horrible for them. They would be they would be ruined for a very long time and delegitimized for the next several elections. Now, thankfully, Nico is someone who um, I find as a great source of information, so I invited him on the show, and he's agreed to come on, so he will be answering my questions about the hearing, and, mo you know, mostly he's just going to give us the rundown, because he sat through all five hours of this hearing, uh, and overall, he's giving us the impression that the judge does, in fact, seem fair uh, and impartial. So, you know, I feel good after this first hearing, but we'll talk with Nico and see what he has to say overall, but, I mean, in the end, this DNC fraud lawsuit is incredibly important, and if you're wondering why you can't find information about it, and the details are scarce, it's because the mainstream media doesn't want to talk about this because they don't want to make the Democratic Party look bad because if you make the party look bad, you in turn make their donors look bad, and that's not acceptable when you live in an oligarchy. So um, let's hope it goes through. Since Bernie Sanders decided to go on the DNC unity tour with Chairman Tom Perez, I'm assuming that Democratic Party loyalists thought this was the start of him falling in line behind the leadership of Tom Perez. But thankfully, that hasn't happened, and the establishment loyalists are not too happy about this. Now, they're angry because in spite of going on this unity tour, Bernie Sanders is still refusing to join the Democratic Party. He also hasn't pledged to hand over his email list to the DNC, and he was late in endorsing establishment candidate John Ossoff, and he also recently stated his belief that the Democratic Party's model is failing, which is a fact given that they've been wiped out at all levels of government, but nonetheless, this still triggered many in the establishment. Now, he also continues to criticize the Democratic Party establishment. So, Democratic Party loyalists probably don't like this because they view his refusal to acquiesce as a sign of divisiveness, but in reality, it's the establishment that's preventing the civil war on the left from ending because they refuse to represent us. They don't care about us, so why would we vote for them? Now, Bernie Sanders, he hasn't yielded an inch. He's not giving the establishment anything that they're looking for. So what we now see is hack journalists who are doing everything they can to smear Bernie Sanders at the behest of the Democratic Party establishment. So first, the Washington Post claims that Bernie Sanders' behavior is, quote, strange, and this is because he's not really committed to coming together with the Democratic Party, according to this author. Now, the article also lambasts him because he decided to endorse Heath Mello instead of John Ossoff. Now, unfortunately for this author, Bernie actually did end up endorsing Ossoff shortly after, so a big portion of this author's criticism of Bernie became moot once that happened. But additionally, Additionally, pro-Clinton news outlet Slate decided to also attack Bernie Sanders because of his podcast. Now, this came seemingly out of nowhere, and it was, it was just honestly odd to me. So, if you all didn't know, Bernie Sanders recently launched a podcast, and it skyrocketed to the number two spot on iTunes. In spite of its popularity, journalist Adam Ragusa wrote an article titled, Bernie Sanders' new podcast is a hit on iTunes. Also, it's awful, and he goes on to call the podcast 
intellectually lazy and technically incompetent. And he likens Bernie Sanders to get this. Hugo Chavez, because he's saying that Bernie Sanders having a podcast is akin to state-run TV. Now, the author then goes on to spend a good amount of time criticizing the microphone quality that Bernie Sanders has and whatnot. And overall, you know, I read through this article and I couldn't help but think, What's the point of this? The article is essentially pointless. There's no real reason that you would publish this if you're a so-called journalist unless you were just looking for any reason to attack Bernie Sanders. And that is what this hack party loyalist decided to do. Now, uh, in addition to just, you know, <laughs> criticizing Bernie Sanders for no good reason, we are now looking at arguments against Bernie Sanders that are reminiscent of the 2016 primary because there are some journalists that are going out of their way to smear Bernie Sanders in the worst way. They're now implying that he is a sexist and that he's racially insensitive. And you know, he's also homophobic and he's a white male, so that's bad. So for example, in an article for The Root titled, What Happened to Your Revolution, Bernie Sanders? Preston Mitchum writes, I never got a tingling sensation when Sanders announced his presidential candidacy two years ago. To be clear, it was hard to ever believe that a then 73-year-old white cisgender straight man would ever lead a revolution, especially one that protects and defends marginalized communities, including poor people, LGBTQ individuals, black and brown women, and undocumented folks. So, obviously, there are multiple problems with this argument, because you're prioritizing Bernie Sanders' identity as a white cisgender male above his actual policy record. And if you look into his record, he has, in fact, stood up for disadvantaged communities. And furthermore, this is problematic because this article supposes that unless you are a transgender, gay, undocumented woman of color, you're not going to be able to sufficiently represent any group that's disadvantaged. Now, the problem is that this identitarian argument is intellectually lazy, and if you carry it to its logical conclusion, then you're supposed to believe that Michelle Bachman would be the best representative of women because she's a woman, or that Caitlyn Jenner would be the best representative of transgender people because she's transgender, or that Milo Yiannopoulos would be the best representative of the gay community because he's gay. But that is demonstrably false because... I don't think Milo would represent my interests more, and I don't think that Michelle Bachman would represent the interests of women better than Bernie Sanders. And as a gay man, yeah, Bernie Sanders has done a phenomenal job at standing up for my rights even before I was born. To give you an example, he's constantly been on the side of social justice since he was young. So during his college days, he led civil rights sit-ins to desegregate the University of Chicago. And during his tenure in the House of Representatives and in the Senate, he constantly has had a pro-choice voting record. And not to mention, he marched with Dr. Martin Luther King. And he's also been on the side of a gay marriage even before anyone else in the Democratic Party. But the author of this article isn't alone in trying to paint Bernie Sanders as someone who doesn't care about minority communities because he's white. There's another article that was released by Anna March of Salon. And this article is titled, Bye Bye Bernie, He's Not Fit to Captain the Democratic Ship If He Can't Stop Chasing the Great White Male. And the argument that she puts forth is literally one of the dumbest arguments you will ever hear. She states, economic populism and what are commonly erroneously and dismissively referred to as social issues, such as reproductive rights, immigration reform, and civil rights for people of color, those who have disabilities, people of all faiths, LGBT people and women, 
are indivisible. Sanders routinely demonstrates his own lack of progressive values by dividing them. I want to stop right here because what this author is asserting is that Bernie Sanders continuously disaggregates economic issues from issues of social justice and you can't do that because these are two issues that are inextricably linked together they can't be separated now i agree with this premise however the problem is that bernie sanders doesn't divide economic and social justice issues in fact here's an example of how he talked about economic issues and how they relate to uh, marginalized communities and that while real unemployment is close to 11 percent youth unemployment has reached tragic proportions. Today in America, for those young people 17 to 20, those kids who have graduated high school or have dropped out of high school, if they are white, youth unemployment is 33%. If they are Hispanic, youth unemployment is 36%. If they are African-American, youth unemployment is 51%. In my view, maybe, just maybe, it makes sense to create jobs and educational opportunities for these young people. So for an author that claims Bernie Sanders is dividing economic and social issues, you're just lying here. You're making that up. But anyways, she goes on to argue, there is no economic populism without abortion rights and civil rights. No one can have economic justice if he or she doesn't have fundamental rights. Yet Sanders has made it plain that abortion rights are negotiable and brushes off identity politics. He consistently argues that his values and his alone should define what it is to be progressive, which can't help but remind one of Donald Trump's unilateral defining of terms. Senator Sanders, we are not not the party of the great white male, nor should we try to be. The Democratic Party appears to be, for now, following Captain Bernie in pursuit of his great white male voter while taking us girls for granted. So again, there's this idea that this author is putting forward that when Bernie Sanders talks about economic issues, it's to the detriment of social justice issues. Again, you're making that up. That's not what Bernie Sanders is doing. So this is a straw man argument, and it's ironic to me because this is the exact opposite of what the Democratic Party establishment does because they pay lip service to social justice issues while ignoring economic issues. So this author's party is dividing social justice and economic issues, but she doesn't have a problem with that. She only has a problem with Bernie Sanders, and irrationally so because, again, Bernie Sanders is not doing this. He talked about criminal justice reform more so than Hillary Clinton did on the campaign. And who was it that actually kicked out Black Lives Matter activists on two different occasions? Oh, that's right. It was Hillary Clinton. So Black Lives Matter protested one of her rallies. They were escorted out. She was on the stage with civil rights legend John Lewis, and they were escorted out. She also kicked out someone who confronted her about her use of the term super predator. That individual, Ashley Williams, was kicked out. But this author supported Hillary Clinton. She was a vocal advocate of Hillary Clinton. So 
she is completely hypocritical in her criticism of Bernie Sanders. And again, she's making up the fact that Bernie Sanders is dividing economic and social issues. Now, the problem I have with this argument, the problem that I have with the Democratic Party basically exploiting identity politics, because that's exactly what they're doing, they are exploiting identity politics, is that this is what they're telling me. So as someone who is from the LGBT community, I'm a gay man, they're telling me that they're willing to stand up for my right to marry. However, when it comes to people in my community going bankrupt because of you know, health insurance costs and having medical emergencies, well, they're okay with that. They can't get on board with that aspect because their health insurance donors don't want them to. So they're willing to acknowledge one portion of our humanity, but deny another portion of it. And I find that incredibly contradictory. I mean, as a human being, I'm a full package. So if you want me, then you need to support all aspects of my identity. And my identity is not just gay person. It's also person who wants healthcare, who wants education, who wants a job. So I find this incredibly insulting and it's just a problematic argument. And let's all be honest here. The only reason why Democrats decided to come on board with social issues like gay marriage is because there's no corporate interests that are currently against it. So it's one of the few areas where they can actually be progressive without a Offending their corporate donors and let's not pretend that they're so committed to the cause of LGBT rights because the party didn't even endorse marriage equality until 2012 when the polls finally indicated that it was politically expedient for them to do so. But the main issue with this author's argument is that it's insulting because you're minimizing the essence of who we are as human beings down to our identities. And it's the crux of what's wrong with the Democratic Party's exploitation of identity politics because they use it as a shield against class concerns that impact people of all colors. Now, furthermore, this author claims that the Democratic Party should not become the party of, quote, the great white male. And that's what Bernie Sanders wants it to be. Actually, it's the complete opposite. Bernie Sanders is literally trying to move them away from being the party of the great white male, because let me ask you this question, Anna, who's the author of this article, who is it that currently funds and controls the Democratic Party? Large multinational corporations. Another question for you, Anna, who is in control of these large multinational corporations? It's the great white male. So what Bernie Sanders is literally trying to do is facilitate the shift away from the great white male, and he's trying to make the Democratic Party the party of white males, normal white males, working class white males, working class black males, and black females, and everyone. He's trying to make it the party of the people so that way they look out for us and not their donors, but you somehow have a problem with that because you don't think he pays attention or at least pays lip service to the extent that the Democratic Party does to social issues. But again, you're being exploited by the party. They're trying to make you think that they care about LGBT rights when they don't give a damn. And another thing, this argument is inherently discriminatory because she's saying the Democratic Party should not be the party of the great white male. And of course, we all agree with that. It should be a party that's inclusive. But in arguing for inclusivity, what she's saying is technically discriminatory. Because if you substitute great white male with great black male or great black female, if you substitute white male with any other group, it sounds discriminatory. It sounds like you're not trying to be inclusive of everyone. And the whole point of the Democratic Party, I mean, it's in their name, is democracy. It's supposed to be a pluralistic party where they take into account the voices of everyone and diversity. 
But this author doesn't want the Democratic Party to cater to white males because apparently they're the devil. And since Bernie Sanders is a straight white cisgender male, apparently he's the devil and he doesn't care about African-Americans. But her candidate, when she was young, she was campaigning for Barry Goldwater. While Bernie Sanders, when he was young, was marching with Dr. Martin Luther King. So this author has no idea what she's talking about, and she is willfully ignorant to the tactics that are exploitative that the Democratic Party continuously loses, uses to get minorities on board with their platform when they just screw us over. And to suggest that the Democratic Party shouldn't take into account the interest of all voters is just unacceptable. White people surprise, surprise, are also vulnerable to poverty and income inequality and medical emergencies. But Bernie's economic populist message is inclusive of all marginalized groups. And he's been a consistent ally to disadvantaged communities, unlike Hillary Clinton, the person who this author voted for. Now, the latter two authors who I discussed that criticized Bernie Sanders, well, the entire argument rests upon the fact that Bernie Sanders endorsed Heath Mellow, but not John Ossoff. Now, the problem with Heath Mellow is that he's vehemently pro-life. He's against abortion. He's against a woman's right to choose. And as the author puts it, being pro-choice is not an optional part of being a progressive, full stop. Now, I actually find that statement perfectly agreeable. I think that uh, Bernie Sanders shouldn't have endorsed Heath Mellow, and I also think that he shouldn't have endorsed John Ossoff. I don't think he should endorse any of these people because there's no reason why you are going to run in the Democratic Party if you're going to exclude yourself from a part that's integral to their platform and what the base actually wants. So if John Ossoff isn't on board with Medicare for All, then Bernie Sanders shouldn't have endorsed him. And if Heath Mello isn't on board with abortion rights, then Bernie Sanders shouldn't have endorsed him. But I'm not going to demonize Bernie Sanders for that. I'm not going to do that. But what this author is doing is something that I'm criticized for by members of the establishment. So when I say I refuse to support a candidate who is not in favor of Medicare for all, they accuse me of trying to administer a purity test. But when this author does it, people like Peter Dow agree. So what is it? Are we going to administer purity tests to Democrats or are we not? It's, it's incredibly frustrating because they're so hypocritical. It's inherently hypocritical. Something that they lambast us for doing, they can do themselves if it serves their interest and if it gives them an opportunity to arbitrarily attack Bernie Sanders. It's so, it's so frustrating to me. I cannot tell you. Now, the, the overall problem with these two arguments, you know, that Bernie Sanders, because he's a white straight male, he just doesn't cater to the needs of marginalized minorities. And, you know, he only has the support of white males, it just falls flat on its face. So Resistance Report explains a survey conducted by Harvard University and the Harris Poll disproves the Bernie bro trope with hard numbers. According to the survey results, which were conducted among 2,027 registered voters between April 14th and April 17th, 2017, Sanders is actually more popular among women, African Americans, Hispanics, and Asian Americans than white people and men. So when you look at the numbers, Bernie Sanders has a higher approval rating among women and minorities than whites and males. So this entire argument right here, disproven by hard numbers. Will these authors come out and apologize to Bernie Sanders for framing him as a candidate that only uh, has, has a message that's tailored to white males? 
Or will they continue to carry on with this bullshit narrative that somehow Bernie Sanders is sexist and racially insensitive when Hillary Clinton was willing to compromise on abortion? When Hillary Clinton selected a VP candidate that was pro-life? His views are similar to Heath Mellows, who Bernie Sanders endorsed. Will this author, will Anna Murch come out and apologize to Bernie Sanders because she's now wrong? She won't because they want to smear Bernie Sanders because they want to make sure that the Democratic Party just continues to exploit women and LGBT people and people of color and pays lip service to their issues once every four years. But once the election goes away, then, you know, talk of criminal justice reform just completely evaporates. It vanishes. I find that unacceptable. Bernie Sanders is the one candidate who's been consistent in linking economic issues to social justice issues, and he's the one candidate that continues to talk about issues like criminal justice reform. He's continuously stood up for my rights as a gay American. So, this author uses identity politics as a means to criticize Bernie Sanders, but what she's not realizing is that she's actually hurting the people that she cares about the most because Bernie Sanders, again, he's going to facilitate the shift of the Democratic Party away from white male control. They are in charge of large corporations who's currently in control of the Democratic Party. And once that happens, we all benefit, not just white males, black males, black females, undocumented immigrants. We all benefit. We are losing to corporations who currently are the puppeteers of the Democratic Party. And this author is too blind to see that. And she needs to wake up. Because again, Anna, if you really care about these groups, if you care about gay people, if you care about my rights, then you should get on board with Bernie Sanders' message. President Trump is looking to take on tax reform, and he recently revealed his tax reform plan. And even though his entire plan fits on one page, this reform is still sweeping. Now, this is what Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin had to say about it. This is going to be the biggest tax cut and the largest tax reform in the history of our country. And we are committed to seeing this through. So uh, I do think he's right. This really is a huge reform plan. Um, but I think that, you know, we probably shouldn't characterize it as tax reform so much as it's just a gift to the rich. That's basically what this is. This is one of the largest giveaways to the American elites ever. The current seven tax brackets will be streamlined to three, 10%, 25%, and 35%. The top rate will drop to 35 from 39.6%, but the Trump administration has not said which income ranges would apply to those brackets. Tax Policy Center has estimated the top 1% of households would see a 14% increase in after-tax income while low- and middle-class Americans would see gains of just 1.2 to 1.8%. The standard deduction, currently 6350 for single people and 12700 for married couples, would double. As a result, many more low- to moderate-income families would pay no taxes, but all other deductions, except for mortgage interest and charitable contributions, would be eliminated, including state and local taxes and medical expenses. About 70% 
of Americans, mostly low to moderate income, currently take the standard deduction and would benefit. The estate, or so-called death tax, would be scrapped. The 40% tax currently applies to a 5.5 million inheritance for individuals and 11 million for married couples. The alternative minimum tax, which generally hits households with incomes of at least several hundred thousand dollars, would be ditched. The current rate is 28% for income that qualifies, and it hits individuals who otherwise would benefit from a sharply lower effective rate because of deductions. A 3.8% tax on the interest, dividends, and capital gains of higher income households that helps fund the Affordable Care Act would vanish. Now, the New York Times adds that the proposal envisions slashing the tax rate paid by businesses, large and small, to 15%. Corporations would not have to pay taxes on their foreign profits, an unusual proposal for a president who has championed an America-first approach and railed against companies that move jobs and resources overseas. They would also enjoy a special one-time opportunity to bring home cash that they are parking overseas, though administration officials would not say how low that rate would be or how they would ensure that the money would be invested productively. So what Donald Trump is doing here is he is cutting his own taxes. I mean, the things that he's proposing here, uh, the alternative minimum, the so-called death tax, which is just the estate tax, these are things that benefit him and his family. So the death tax is what Republicans call a tax on rich people when they die. That wealth gets carried over to uh, their inheritance, their, you know, their, their children. And we tax that at a higher rate. But Donald Trump is making sure that when he dies, his children will be able to get most of his inheritance uh, without high taxes on it. So he's basically doing this to help himself, to help his family, to help his, his rich friends and family. And I find it shameless. I mean, this is just a shameless bill. This is a complete giveaway uh, to the wealthiest Americans. It's a giveaway to himself. So he was elected, gets in office, and one of the first things he tries to do is cut his own taxes within the first 100 days. It's absolutely ridiculous. Now, the problem with these tax cuts and with them being so large is that even though some of these changes will increase federal revenue, overall, this will underfund the federal government. Now, according to Tax Policy Center, this will raise the federal debt to $7.2 trillion in the first decade and $20.9 trillion by 2036. And that's trillion with a T. We're not talking billions. We're not talking millions. He is so hell-bent on cutting his own taxes and the taxes of his rich friends that he is willing to raise the debt by $20.9 trillion. So I'm going to ask the question because whenever I talk about Medicare for All, whenever progressives bring up tuition-free colleges and universities, they ask us the same question. So how the hell is Donald Trump going to pay for it? Well, according to Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, it's going to pay for itself. Will it pay for itself? Um, again, I think as we've said, we're working on lots of details as to this. We have over 100 people in the Treasury that have been working on tax and scoring lots of different scenarios. This will pay for itself with growth. Why the fuck you lying? So uh, everything he's saying there is completely unrealistic. How do you expect to cut taxes for the rich this much and not create debt. I mean, you can't. It's impossible with the extent to which he's cutting taxes for the wealthy. There's no way you can get around it. And think about this. I mean, he's cutting the corporate tax rate from 35 to 15%. Now, this does uh, actually benefit some small businesses as well, some small businesses. But 
even though our tax rate is 35%, that's the marginal rate. You don't effectively pay that much after you, you know, take into account loopholes and deductions. Corporations do not pay 35%. They are able to get away with not paying taxes a lot of the time. I mean, there are some corporations that pay zero. We pay more in taxes than some corporations. How crazy is that? Now, you know what he's doing here is he... He's trying to be somewhat generous. He's trying to throw us peasants some crumbs. And he's saying, well, what I'm doing is doubling the standard deduction. And, you know, this would be a good thing for most Americans. You'd get a slight uptick, although he's eliminating the other deduction. So even though he's giving us a little tiny boost, uh, he's giving his himself and his rich friends a gigantic boost. And furthermore, when it comes to the middle class, who's already being squeezed, uh, Steve Mnuchin cannot say unequivocally that this tax reform plan would not hurt the middle class. Take his word for it. Can you tell a middle class family watching right now, family of four, earning $60,000, how much they'll save under the president's plan? Well, first of all, let me say it's great to be here with you this morning. And this is about middle income tax cuts. And although we're not releasing the specific numbers, this is about creating economic effects in tax cuts for the middle class. It's also about creating tax simplification so that most Americans will be able to fill out their tax returns on a giant postcard. People are tired of way too much complexity and this is also about making business taxes competitive which will create American jobs. But don't the details matter? Can't, why can't you say how this is going to affect a middle class family? Well, the, the issue is that we are working with the House and the Senate, and our objective is to turn this into a bill that will pass and the president will sign. And as you know, the details of taxes are very complicated, and we're committed to working quickly and getting this done. This is about telling the American public what the president's principles are, which are all about economic growth, jobs, jobs, jobs. Can you guarantee that no one in the middle class is going to pay more? That's our objective, absolutely. Is it a guarantee? Uh, I can't make any guarantees until this thing is done and on the president's desk, but I can tell you that's our number one objective in this. So if he's not willing to unequivocally say that this will not increase taxes on the middle class, then you can bet your ass that as a way of paying for those tax cuts to rich people, this will hurt the middle class. And even though he's giving poor people something by doubling the standard deduction, this is really a catch-22 if you think about it, because what he's trying to do is sell it to poor people by increasing the standard deduction. But again, this is a trade-off because he's eliminating other deductions. But I mean, the bulk of this bill is tax cuts to the wealthy, and he doesn't have a plan on how to pay for the tax cuts to the rich. Now, what's going to happen is he's going to give poor Americans a tiny break, a little teeny tiny break by doubling the standard deduction, and that's, that's a good thing. But... Those same people who will benefit from the standard deduction will inevitably be screwed over by the same tax plan because when you cut taxes for the wealthy so much that you underfund the government, well, they're going to have to dip into programs that disproportionately benefit the poor people who would in fact receive this standard deduction. So obviously, we're going to be cutting social safety net programs, welfare assistance. So even though you may get this standard deduction and you might like this bill, even though it's a giveaway to the rich, well, you're going to get screwed over because because overall, there's just going to be less government assistance because you can't cut taxes this much and not find a way to pay for it. And the way that you pay for it is by uh, taking that burden, the tax burden of the wealthy and shifting it onto the middle class, cutting programs for the poor. So again, if you're if you're in favor of this 
deduction, the standard deduction doubling, I feel you. But this is a huge trade-off, and don't just take what he's giving you, because this is a catch-22. He's screwing you over. And also, when it comes to the standard deduction, the New York Times explains, Mr. Trump wants to double the standard deduction for individuals, essentially eliminating taxes on around $24,000 of a couple's earnings. That proposal was met with alarm by home builders and real estate agents who fear it would disincentivize the purchase of homes. The proposal would scrap most itemized deductions, such as those for state and local tax payments, a valuable break for taxpayers in Democratic states like California and New York. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of people who may initially uh, have voted for, who voted for Trump specifically, who need your reaction. They're going to see this as a good thing, but unfortunately, it, there's a huge trade-off. This will hurt certain people more. This is going to hurt the poor people who will get this standard deduction because, again, you don't cut taxes this much for the wealthy without finding out a way to finance it, and you put that burden on the backs of poor people. It's called trickle-down economics. Reagan did it, and now Trump is doing the same thing. Bush did the same thing. I, I mean, we've seen this over and over again. So this is history repeating itself. Donald Trump is giving the poor some crumbs while him and his rich friends are taking the whole buffet. So this overall plan, if you can even call it a plan, it's it's just a complete disaster. It's a complete disaster. And you can bet your ass that Republicans will not come on board unless Donald Trump, well, some Republicans anyways, uh, won't come on board unless Donald Trump explicitly outlines a way to pay for these tax cuts for the rich and stay vigilant because you know where it's going to come from. It's going to come from you. It's going to hurt you, the poorest working class Americans. So um, this is something that cannot stand. So, you know, <laughs> it, it's just it's really shameless to me. We have a billionaire elected. He's an oligarch and he's cutting his own taxes. If you're not insulted by this if you're not insulted by how he betrayed you if you voted for him then you're not paying attention in spite of the republican party's recent failure to repeal the affordable care act they are now taking aim at it once again now part of the reason why they couldn't get the repeal of the affordable care act through congress was because members of the freedom caucus just wouldn't get on board now that seems to be changing it seems as though Freedom Caucus members who were once reluctant are warming up to this new uh, proposal to gut the Affordable Care Act, um, and their new proposal is even worse than the one that they proposed last time. However, there are some moderate Republicans who are against it. So I'll talk about the prospects as to whether or not this will pass or not, but first I want to get to Paul Ryan's remarks on the bill. We believe that there are additional reforms and ideas that can do both things protect people with pre-existing conditions and continue to lower premiums and give states flexibility so that more insurers can come into the marketplace. One of the concerns we have is that insurers are leaving left and right and people are down to like one choice and in some cases no choices. That's not good. Having a monopoly isn't a choice, it's a monopoly. And so what we're trying to do is find the kinds of provisions that bring more insurers into the marketplace so that people have more choices and with more choices you have more competition and with more competition you have lower prices. And we are all dedicating to making sure that people with pre-existing conditions still get the kind of coverage that they need and that's affordable coverage. And we want to find a way to do that in such a way that everyone else who's in the insurance market can also get lower premiums, affordable choices, and more choice, more competition. So that's what this is all about. Now, what you just heard might sound peachy keen, but in actuality, 
He's lying to you. He is using Orwellian doublespeak because even though he's saying that he will make sure that people with pre-existing conditions do not get discriminated against by health insurance companies, uh, this bill effectively allows health insurance companies to discriminate against people uh, and this is because he is allowing states to determine whether or not companies can do this now the huffington post explains representative tom MacArthur on tuesday formally unveiled an amendment to the american Healthcare act the bill to repeal obamacare that republicans tried to get through the house last month the amendment which huffington post's matt fuller first reported last week is the product of negotiations among key republicans including vice president mike pence the measure's supporters insist that their proposal would not harm people with serious medical problems. In fact, a clause states explicitly, nothing in this act shall be construed as permitting health insurance issuers to limit access to health care coverage for individuals with pre-existing conditions. But that is exactly what it would do. By now, most people know that the Affordable Care Act protects people with pre-existing conditions, but not everybody realizes that the law accomplishes this through several mechanisms that interact. The law doesn't simply prohibit insurers from denying coverage outright to people with medical problems. It also prohibits insurers from charging those people more or from selling policies that skimp on or leave out key benefits, rendering insurance useless to people who depend on those benefits. Under the new proposal, insurers still couldn't reject people who have pre-existing conditions, but states could allow insurers to charge those people higher premiums and to sell policies without Obamacare's essential benefits. This approach provides access to people with pre-existing conditions in theory, but not in practice, since they'd be charged astronomical premiums if states allow it. This is what Larry Levitt, senior vice president of the Henry J. Kaiser Family Foundation, said Tuesday evening. Basically, with this bill, we're back to square one. Because what the Affordable Care Act did was it banned health insurance companies from discriminating against people with pre-existing conditions. And now they're saying, well, you know what? You still can't discriminate. You still have to offer people with pre-existing conditions insurance. However, you can charge them more if they do have a pre-existing condition. And effectively, what that does is it ensures that people with pre-existing conditions don't get health care. So, I mean, make no mistake about it. This effectively gets us back to square one before the clause, um, the anti-discrimination clause in the Affordable Care Act was codified into law. It gets us right back to square one. And it's a trick that Republicans are using. They're speaking out of both sides of their mouth saying, you know what, we're making sure that we protect you and that these health insurance companies can't discriminate against you if you have a uh, pre-existing condition. However, they can charge you a ridiculous price uh, and that will prevent you from getting insurance. But I mean, they can't discriminate against you. Well, <laughs> That's exactly what discrimination is. If you are allowing health insurance companies to treat one group of people uh, differently than another group of people, that's the definition of discrimination. That's unjust. But Paul Ryan is using Orwellian doublespeak to sell this to you. Uh, and, you know, it sounds lovely when you hear him speak about it, but when you dive into the details, it's heavily troubling. Now, keep in mind here that what's considered a, quote, pre-existing condition 
Well, that's up to the discretion of the health insurance industry. So if they think anything, even, you know, as arbitrary as something that's simple as a pre-existing condition, they might use that as grounds to justify charging you a higher fee, even if you don't really have a pre-existing condition. But I mean, now that it's the case that people with pre-existing conditions will be discriminated against again, well, apparently this bill, uh, it's more alluring to members of the House Freedom Caucus because they can't possibly get on board with the bill unless it sufficiently screws, screws over the American people. And now that this really screws over people, now that people might die because uh, they have a pre-existing condition and can't afford the astronomical price that health insurance companies impose because of this bill, now the Freedom Caucus is thinking, oh, you know what, this actually sounds pretty good, let's go ahead and get on board now. However, thankfully, there are some moderate Republicans who still don't like this bill, so it may not actually pass in spite of the Freedom Caucus getting on board because there are some reasonable moderate Republicans who are willing to have a spine and stand up for what's right for the American people. But what's interesting is that this story kind of takes a turn for the crazy when you find out that uh, <laughs> the GOP doesn't actually think this plan is great for the American people. Even though Paul Ryan will sell it to you as a plan that's fantastic for the American people, they don't actually believe that because Vox explains House Republicans appear to have included a provision that exempts members of Congress and their staff from their latest health care plan. Members of Congress and their staff would get the guarantee of keeping these Obamacare regulations. So when it comes to discriminating against normal citizens with pre-existing conditions, they're okay with that. But when it comes to members of Congress and their families and their staff, well, they want to make sure they're protected from that discrimination. So in other words, this health care bill is great for you, the peasants, but it's not good for the elites who run our country. Think about how selfish that is and how shameless they are. And this was hidden away. So, you know, kudos to Vox for finding this because this is something that you, you could have easily missed, but they, they found it. But they later stated that this was just a loophole that they intended to actually close in the future. And they only included this provision because the Senate Budget Committee requested that they do that. So that way they can be compliant with Senate reconciliation rules. But the Senate Budget Committee actually came out and said, no, that's that's not actually the case. Um, we did not tell them that they had to do this and include this provision. <laughs> so, in other words, they got caught, and they're embarrassed that they got caught. So, this healthcare plan, if you, if you want to know how shitty it is, Republicans themselves don't want it. And they went out of their way, mind you, to create a provision to exempt them from it because it's so bad. So, it's Good enough for the American people, but not good enough for them, the oligarchs, the elites. Because mind you, everyone in Congress, they're millionaires. They're oligarchs themselves. Um, so this cannot stand. And hopefully there is the same resistance at town halls for Republicans that we saw the first time when they tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Because the answer is you don't repeal the Affordable Care Act. Is it broken? Absolutely. But it was a step in the right direction. So we made some progress, but still... The Affordable Care Act left some people out, so we've got to expand it. Specifically, we expand that Medicare provision to everyone, and we end the healthcare debate once and for all. Noam Chomsky recently appeared on Democracy Now! and I thought that he did a phenomenal job articulating the extent to which Republicans no longer just pose a threat to Americans. 
but they now pose an existential threat to humanity. And this is not a hyperbolic statement, and he kind of goes through the reasons as to why this is the case. So let's go ahead and take a look at what he had to say, and then I have a lot to say about this. I mean, has there ever been an organization in human history that is dedicated with such a commitment to the destruction of organized human life on Earth? Not that I'm aware of is the Republican organization, I hesitate to call it a party, committed to that overwhelmingly. There isn't even any question about it. Uh, take a look at the last uh, primary campaign. Uh, plenty of publicity. Very little comment on the most significant fact. Every single candidate either denied that what is happening is happening, namely serious move towards environmental catastrophe, or there were a couple of moderates, so-called uh, Jeb Bush, who said, maybe it's happening, we really don't know, but it doesn't matter because fracking is working fine so we can get more fossil fuels. Uh, then there was uh, the guy who was called the adult in the room, John Kasich. The one person who said, yes, it's true, global warming's going on, but it doesn't matter. He's the governor of Ohio. In Ohio, we're going to go on using coal for energy, and we're not going to apologize for it. So that's a 100% commitment to racing towards disaster. Uh, then take a look at what's happened since. The uh, uh, November 8th uh, was the election. There was, as most of you know, I'm sure, a very important conference underway in Morocco, Marrakesh, Morocco. Uh, almost roughly 200 countries at the uh, United Nations-sponsored con uh, conference, which was uh, the goal of which was to put some uh, specific uh, commitments into the uh, verbal agreements that were reached at Paris in December 2015, the preceding International Conference on uh, Global Warming. Uh, the Paris Conference did intend to uh, reach a verifiable treaty, but they couldn't uh, because of the most dangerous organization in human history. Uh, the Republican Congress would not accept any commitments. So therefore, the world was left with uh, verbal promises, but no commitments. Well, last November 8th, they were going to try to carry that forward. Uh, on November 8th, in fact, uh, there was a report by the World Meteorological Organization, a uh, very dire analysis of the state of the environment and the light likely prospects, also pointed out that we're coming perilously close to the uh, tipping point where which was the goal, uh, the, the goal of the Paris negotiations was to keep things below that, coming very close to it, and other uh, ominous uh, predictions. At that point, the uh, conference pretty much stopped because the news came in about the election. And it turns out that the most powerful country in human history, the richest, most powerful, most influential, uh, the leader of the free world, uh, has just decided not only not to support the efforts, but actively to undermine them. 
So there's the whole world on one side, literally, at least trying to do something or other. Uh, not enough, maybe, although some places are going pretty far, like Denmark, a couple of others. And on the other side, in splendid isolation, is the country led by the most dangerous organization in human history, which is saying, we're not part of this. In fact, we're going to try to undermine it. So he poses the question that I want to respond to. He says, uh, has there ever been an organization in human history that is dedicated with such commitment to the destruction of organized human life on Earth? Um, and I think the answer, honestly, is no. Because if you are the party, if you're one of two parties in the world's most powerful country, uh, both economically and militarily, you have a huge influence on world affairs, not just the United States. So, I mean, it's already a problem that they refuse to put forward policies to mitigate climate change. However, it gets worse when you see that they're actively trying to undo progress that we've made, and we haven't made much progress towards uh, climate change. We haven't, we have not done much to assuage this threat, yet they are undoing what little progress we've made. Now, What's interesting to me is that we're now seeing Donald Trump actually trying to cripple departments that view climate change as a national security threat. In fact, The Intercept had a great article about this. So when you look at certain government departments like the Department of Homeland Security, the State Department, the Defense Department, well, under the tenure of Obama, they began to characterize climate change as a national security threat, and rightfully so, because... Think about it this way. If it were the case that there was a hostile foreign country that threatened to annex a large portion of Florida, wouldn't we act immediately? Of course we would. But we have climate change, and you know, a result of climate change will be rising sea levels, which will put part of Florida underwater, and they're not acting. They're not treating that as the security threat that it really is. And it's not just about our territorial integrity. We're talking about food security as well. I mean, this will affect crops. Certain regions of the world may benefit from, you know, a uh, warmer climate, but other areas uh, will not. And this will cause mass migration, new diseases to come up once the uh, ice caps melt that we won't know how to deal with, ancient diseases, and they're doing everything they can to undermine what little progress we've made, and I think this makes them an enemy of human beings. I mean, if you're, if you're behaving in this way that's irrational, that's against human interests, then you're trying to end the species. And the climate change tipping point is so close that we have no time to act. I mean, there's already going to be consequences that will come to fruition due to climate change that we won't be able to control. But, you know, what we have to do now is try to mitigate climate change as much as we can, and we also have to focus simultaneously on adaptation because climate change is happening. Uh, the planet is warming, and we can't reverse that. So we also have to learn how to adapt if we do want to survive as a species. And we're getting to the point where that may not be possible. So we, it really feels like we're in the last days of humanity because the Republican Party, you know, with all their hubris, they refuse to do anything about it. And they're trying to gaslight us and make us think that we're crazy for believing in this. And they, they claim it, you know, oh, don't buy into this conspiracy theory. If 97 to 99% of scientists are telling you something is an issue... It's not a conspiracy. It's a fact. And if you 
think that climate change is a conspiracy, then you also should question uh, gravity and whether or not the Earth is flat. Although I shouldn't say that because there are enough idiots that actually think that. And you know, another aspect of climate change is, you know, we consider how this will impact us, you know, uh, with more extreme weather patterns and um, more drought, less water for us, mass famine. But we don't think about the other aspects of climate change, like um, ocean acidification. I mean, think about how much ocean life will be killed off because of us. It's really, you know, it's so sad. So, I mean, it's not just going to be humans that will go extinct as a result of climate change. It's going to be a lot of other species. And I just find it so sickening. We don't know if humans will survive this. We honestly do not know. We are killing ourselves and Republicans are doing everything they can to accelerate the extinction of humanity. They're enemies of human beings. They really are. And we have to start characterizing them as such because they are existential threats to the human species. That's what this has come down to. That's not a hyperbolic to say. And even if it's the case that, you know, it turns out that all of us liberals are just kooky and we're wrong, then we still win. If we move towards clean, renewable energy, we all still win because we pollute less. So tackling climate change is a win-win for all of us. It would be an economic boom to move towards renewable energy, but this tight hold that the oil and gas industry has on Congress because they want their subsidies, corporate welfare, every single year, it's preventing the Republican Party from taking action. And it's no longer acceptable. The Republicans are an enemy of the species, and we need to actually view them as such. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi has been untouchable for most of her career in spite of the fact that she fails to adequately represent the American people. Now, the reason why I say she's been untouchable is because the Democratic Party loves her. They promoted her multiple times to a leadership position, and this is because she is a fundraising machine. Nobody can deny her that because she is able to bring in millions of dollars to the Democratic Party, and they love her for it. And you really don't make it far in the party unless you prove yourself as someone who can bring in money to the party. Now, because of all this money, though, she is beholden to all the donors that she's raised money from. So she's she's been untouchable. The Democratic Party has propped her up, even though she's a failure of a, of a politician. She's done nothing for the American people. Um, and she's never really faced a serious primary challenger until now. And she's not just facing any primary challenger. A Berniecrat will be challenging Nancy Pelosi. So according to the Los Angeles Times, San Francisco attorney Stephen R. Jaff is a lifelong Democrat and he intends to do what no Democrat has been able to do so far. Make it a runoff election against House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi. Jaff, 71, is an unemployment attorney who became a volunteer for the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign last year. I was a pretty hardcore Bernie Sanders supporter, said Jaff, who gave money to the campaign and volunteered during the Nevada caucuses. He was one of two attorneys who filed for an injunction on behalf of Sanders supporters in the California primary, requesting revotes and an extension of the voter registration deadline. The request was ultimately denied. Jaff said he was devastated by Sanders' loss to Hillary Clinton in the primary season and that Sanders, in part, inspired him to run. He says that he supports single-payer health care and criticized Pelosi for raising money from corporations and special interests. I know that Ms. Pelosi's strategy has been to essentially ignore anyone who is challenging her, but I anticipate she'll have a more difficult time doing that with my candidacy, Jaff said in an interview. 
He thinks if local progressive activists can propel him to a runoff with Pelosi, he'll have a quite realistic chance of winning. There's a rumbling, a wave of activism here by people who have never really stepped forward before. So this guy's the real deal. He is the real deal, and this is long overdue. It's about time that Nancy Pelosi has a primary challenger that will get her to be accountable to the American people. And, you know, the Democratic Party, the DNC, like I said, they want to do everything they can to protect Nancy Pelosi because she's in bed with large multinational corporations and billionaire donors that fund the Democratic Party's elections. So she's someone who they desperately want to keep in power. Um, but here, you know, Jaff comes along. He says, you know what? I'm tired of the status quo. I don't like that she's taking money from large corporations and doing their bidding. And I've got an example to prove that. So Nancy Pelosi, she actually came out surprisingly in favor of a single-payer healthcare system. She says that she supports that plan. However, she has yet to co-sponsor H.R. 676. Now, if you're wondering why someone who supports single-payer won't co-sponsor a bill that would actually bring single-payer to fruition, well, I'll tell you why. Nancy Pelosi's number one donor is health professionals. She has taken $1.3 million from them over the course of her career. So if you're wondering why she won't support H.R. 676, you know, that probably has something to do with it. She's also accepted half a million from the insurance industry, another half a million from lobbyists, and nearly 400000 from hospitals and nursing homes, as well as 400000 from the pharmaceutical industry. So make no mistake about it, her donors are paying her to not co-sponsor bills like H.R. 676. And if that's not the case, Nancy, prove me wrong. Come out and co-sponsor H.R. 676, and I will gladly give credit where credit is due. But you won't do that, Nancy. You refuse to do anything that would jeopardize your ability to raise money. And if you come out and co-sponsor a bill that existentially threatens the health insurance industry... They're not going to be donating to you in the numbers that they have been throughout the course of your career. And this is something we all need to be really careful about. So lately, there's been Democrats coming out saying, you know what, I think healthcare is a right, like Tom Perez. And there's also been Democrats just flat out saying, you know, I support a Medicare for all system. However, if you ask them whether or not they would co-sponsor a bill like HR 676, they'd say, well, you know what, maybe not. I don't think I'm going to co-sponsor that uh, because, you know... I think my constituents are against it. Now, there's an example of this. You know, I had uh, Alexis Frank on my show. She's running to represent the 5th District of South Carolina. Lovely human being. Uh, just su such a nice person. Overall, a well-rounded candidate. Uh, but, you know, she... I, I invited her on the show specifically because I thought she would be an ally to HR 676 because on Twitter she stated that she supports Medicare for All. But unfortunately, when I asked her whether or not she would co-sponsor HR 676... She declined, and obviously you can see the disappointment in my face <laughs> during that interview, but this, is, this isn't this is just, you know, Alexis Frank, not to harp on her. Um, this is other Democrats who are using the same tactics. So if a Democrat is trying to win you over by saying they support Medicare for All, make them prove it. Make them co-sponsor HR 676, and if they don't, they're not an ally, and again... This is an issue that's non-negotiable. I'm not backing anyone. You don't get a dime from me uh, unless you pledge to support H.R. 676 and Bernie Sanders' Senate version uh, that he will be introducing soon. So, I mean, Nancy Pelosi, she is 
a wolf in sheep's clothing. She says she supports single payer, but she won't get on board. And this is because, uh, you know, <laughs> I showed you, you got to follow the money if you want the answer. And finally, we have a real chance to get a true progressive elected uh, and finally dethrone this fundraising machine. And it's about time. So you can bet that progressives will be behind Jeff because 75% of the Democratic Party's voting base, this includes left-leaning independents, support a single-payer Medicare for All healthcare system. And if they're not going to get on board, they've got to get out of office. If you're a progressive, recently it doesn't really seem like there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful in this country, considering how Republicans are just doing everything to harm the American people and how members of the Democratic Party establishment don't really seem like they actually want to resist Donald Trump and the Republicans in the way that they claimed they would when he was first elected. However, Bernie Sanders is one of the few politicians that's doing everything in his power to make sure that the American people do not lose hope. Now, case in point, so as you all know, the Republican Party are they're just not done with healthcare as of yet. And I was I was hoping that once they failed initially, uh, with their health care law and when they weren't able to repeal the Affordable Care Act that they would just leave it alone. But unfortunately, they're not going to do that. And the bill that they have come back with is even worse than the one that they first proposed. However, Bernie Sanders is capitalizing on this time, and we're all talking about health care reform, to counter their shitty bill with one that actually would help the American people, with one that has majority support in the country, and that is a Medicare for All system. The Trump care has been revived. The House Freedom Caucus has prevailed upon uh, uh, the, the, you know, the leadership to make it uh, more favorable to the insurance industry in some ways, to take away more patient protections. And I just get the sense this is DOA on the Senate. Like, what, even conservative colleagues of yours, uh, they're, they're not going to run with this ball. I don't think so. I mean, again, here you have a president who said, I'm a different type of Republican. I am going to fight for health care for, quote unquote, everybody. And then you brought, he brought forth, along with Paul Ryan, a health care proposal, which threw 24 million Americans off of health insurance, raised premiums for older workers, defunded uh, Planned Parenthood, uh, and cut Medicaid by $800 billion. And this proposal would likely be worse. So, Look, bottom line here, Chris, I'm going to introduce a Medicare for all single payer program. We've got to join the rest of the world, and guarantee health care to all of our people as they write. Now, the part of the clip that I didn't show you uh, is Chris Hayes just quickly changing the subject because he does not want to talk about Medicare for all because, you know, currently it's really not in the Democratic Party's interest to support a Medicare for all system. But best believe that when Bernie Sanders introduces this bill, we've got to hit the ground running. Just like with H.R. 676, the efforts of grassroots activists, uh, Justice Democrats, and you have made the number of co-sponsors just shoot up every single week. So last week when I filmed, the bill had 98 co-sponsors, and now it has six more. We are up to 104 co-sponsors. So if we can do what we did in the Senate like we did in the House, then we can make sure that Medicare for All becomes a reality someday, because even if it can't pass right now with the Republican-controlled Congress, at least we know who's on our side with respect to the Democratic Party. However, I really want to emphasize that there's a couple of Democrats, or 
actually, I shouldn't say a couple. There's there's many Democrats who are pretending to be our allies when they're not actually our allies. So they'll come out in favor of single-payer health care, but when it comes to co-sponsoring bills that would, in fact, bring uh, Medicare for All to America, they're not on board. So Nancy Pelosi, you know, she, she says she's in favor of single-payer, but she has not yet co-sponsored H.R. 676. And I'll say it again. Prove me wrong, Nancy. I want to eat my own words. I, I want nothing more than to be corrected here and for you to prove me wrong. But she hasn't yet. And it's because she's taking money from health insurance companies who do not want a Medicare for all system. Now, this is akin to the Republicans who pretend to be allies with us when it comes to climate change. They'll say, you know what? I don't think climate change is actually a hoax. However, I don't think it's man-made. So it's it's happening, but it's not because of human activity. Well, with that, you're effectively denying climate change anyway. So you're not making progress. You're just moving the goalposts. And this is what many Democrats are doing with respect to Medicare for all. And we have to be cognizant of their shady tactics. And even, you know, you hear Tom Perez saying it. We believe that healthcare is a right. This is what Bernie Sanders says as he puts forward the idea of a single-payer healthcare system. But when asked whether or not the DNC is on board with single-payer, Tom Perez refused to answer the question. So the bottom line is that this is non-negotiable. Either you support Medicare for All or we do not support you. Now, there's another way that Bernie Sanders is trying to give us a little bit of hope right now. And he has encouraged many Democrats to get on board with a $15 minimum wage. So The Hill explains, Democrats are uniting behind Senator Bernie Sanders in a legislative push to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 per hour. Sanders will reintroduce a $15 minimum wage bill Wednesday, attracting support from some Democrats such as Senator Patty Murray, who previously supported a smaller minimum wage increase. Representatives Keith Ellison and Bobby Scott will drop a companion bill in the House. Ellison has previously pushed for $15 an hour, while Scott joined Murray in calling for a $12 minimum wage hike last Congress. And look, I want to take a minute to applaud these Democrats who are finally waking up to the fact that a $15 minimum wage is the starting point. You can't go into negotiations with Republicans expecting them to... Uh, implement a $12 minimum wage. If you even want $12, then you've got to start at 15 And I've made the case before, and people think I'm an extremist, but so be it, that we've got to start at a $20 an hour minimum wage because by the time we start negotiating with Republicans in Congress, we're going to be, uh, we'll negotiate down to $15. So in order to be where we actually want to be, I think we need to aim higher. But here's the thing. If you want the economy to grow, you have to increase the purchasing power of the middle and lower classes, and you only do that by putting more money into their hands. Now, the rebuttal is that this will increase the cost of living for everyone if we raise the minimum wage, but in cities that have actually implemented a $15 minimum wage, their economy was actually heavily benefited from this. So, that's just Republican nonsense. That's what corporations who don't want to raise the wage and pay their workers a fair price want you to believe. So, um, getting back to Bernie here, he is the one politician, um, in the Senate at least, that's really looking out for us. And I think that even though these, you know, um, these bills don't have a chance of passing, let's all be realistic here, he, he, you can tell that he is moving the Democratic Party, at least with respect to a couple of issues, but they've got to get on board with all the other issues that are non-negotiable for progressives. And you can call it a, period, a purity test. I don't care. Uh, Medicare for all is non-negotiable. A $15 minimum wage is non-negotiable. If you're going to be progressive and represent left-wingers, then actually do it. Actually represent us. And you can really tell that Bernie Sanders is having some influence. But 
but not as much as he should be having. And that's not because of Bernie Sanders. That's because of the re reluctance of the Democratic Party. So, um, you know, my, my hat goes off to Bernie Sanders. This is great. Huge news coming out of California. They currently have a Medicare for All bill that could one day be a model for the rest of the nation. So this is something that I was waiting for because, you know, when one state implements something, there's a likelihood that the domino effect could occur. So we saw this with pot legalization. So uh, it was Washington and Colorado that legalized marijuana first. And then two years later, we saw Oregon and Alaska and Washington, D.C. do it. And then another two years later, we saw California do it and other states. So it just takes one state really to get the ball rolling. And if California does in fact pass this bill... We could be looking at nationwide Medicare for All if it does, in fact, work out for them. And California is a great state for this because they have a large population. And one of the main complaints about Medicare for All in the United States by naysayers is that, well, you know, you can't actually compare the United States to Canada or the United Kingdom because we just have a larger population. But they fail to realize that we pay more per capita on healthcare than those nations that have a single-payer system when you'd think they would be paying more. But that's not the case. So this bill is very important to all of us. We all have a vested interest in this bill. Now, uh, there is good and bad news with respect to this bill. Now, predictably, uh, there are special interests right now, namely the health insurance industry, um, that they're against it. They're going to fight tooth and nail. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people in the legislature in California funded by the health insurance industry. So International Business Times explains, since the 2010 election, the 24 lawmakers on the two California legislative committees that will consider the single-payer legislation have collectively received more than 819,000 in donations from the industry groups that are officially opposing the measure. The cash haul includes more than 80,000 to chairman of the Assembly and Senate Health Committees, the latter of which is set to consider the legislation at a public hearing Wednesday. The groups opposing the bill are listed on a new state report. It also lists the bill's supporters, primarily grassroots advocacy organizations and labor unions rather than corporate groups. In addition to the cash that has flowed to individual legislatures from corporate groups opposing the legislation, California's Democratic and Republican parties received more than $2.2 million from the same groups in the last four election cycles. House Speaker Anthony Rendon, Senate President Kevin DeLeon, and Governor Jerry Brown, all Democrats, have all separately received a combined 370000 from groups. Brown recently expressed skepticism about the single-payer legislation. So that's the bad news. You know, you have special interests, predictably so, making sure they do everything they can to defeat this bill. Because let's be honest here, this bill poses an existential threat to health insurance companies in the state of California, and they are fighting for their lives right now. But unfortunately for them, the American people are also fighting for their lives. There are Californians that are fighting for their lives who were left out by the Affordable Care Act and they need health care. We can no longer allow, allow our citizens to die or go bankrupt if they can't afford insurance. It's not what you do in a nation that purports to take care of its own. Now, the good news is that this bill isn't actually dead on arrival in spite of all of the money being spent to stop it from ever seeing the light of day. So the New York Times reports, 
a proposal to eliminate health insurance companies and guarantee government-funded health care for all California residents is moving forward. So the Senate Health Committee voted Wednesday to send the measure to the Appropriations Committee. The vote came after hundreds of nurses, clad in red, held a rally in Sacramento, marched to the state capitol, and packed into a committee room. Make no mistake about it, grassroots activism facilitated the, the advancement of this bill and if this bill actually does pass, it will in fact be because of relentless grassroots activism. So if you live in the state of California, you know what to do. You've got to start making some calls immediately. But understand that progressives from around the country will be on your side. We're fighting with you because this is something that it doesn't just benefit Californians. If this passes, this will benefit all of us, because again, this could be a model for the rest of the country. And what we can do for those of us that don't live in the state of California is call up the governor, Jerry Brown, because if the governor, who's the leader of the California Democratic Party, communicates to his party that this bill should pass, then that would be a big boost, not just in terms of getting more people to come on board, but in terms of the media coverage it would generate when you get a governor of one of the most populous states in the nation come out in favor of this bill. But he's expressed skepticism. Not acceptable. So I'm going to call Governor Jerry Brown to make sure that he knows that this bill must pass. His number is 916 916- Four four five, two eight four one. Thank you for calling the office of Governor Jerry Brown. In order to expedite your call, please select from the following options. To continue in English, please press one now. For office hours, mailing address, fax number, or to email the office of Governor Brown, please press 1. If you'd like to speak to a representative, please press 4. Please hold while your call is being transferred. If you have reached this message, our office is closed. Please try calling back during normal business hours, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., excluding holidays. You can also visit our website at www. .gov.ca.gov to request assistance or to leave a comment. Thank you. (laughs) We'll try that again. Okay, so apparently um, we're going to have to email Governor Jerry Brown because uh, I don't know what the hell that is. Um, (laughs) So uh, give it a try. Hopefully you can uh, get through and have better luck than I did. But certainly we all have to come together and help Californians get this bill through Congress, uh, through their state legislature, that is, because this is something that this will benefit all of us. This could be the start of a nationwide healthcare Medicare for all bill that would save lives, literally. Um, so this is incredibly important. In any state that's legislature puts forward a bill like this, we've all got to come to uh, the rescue of it because, you know, what's good for one state will most likely occur at other states as well. We need this domino effect to start, and California would be a great state to, to uh, lead the way. Uh, so yeah, this, this is really uh, an encouraging thing to see. 
Hey everyone, so I am here with Newslog's Caitlin Johnstone, and she is one of the best journalists in the country right now. If you're a progressive, she is absolutely killing it on Newslog. So Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, no worries, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. This is a real honor. Well, th well, thank you. It's great to have you. So one thing that I wanted to ask you about is, you know, if you read a lot of your work, you you refer to the deep state. So I wanted to know if you could just kind of explain to us what the deep state is and why it's significant. Right. Well, the deep state is the unelected uh, leadership of of the US and in turn the world, like the planet pretty much is ruled by these people uh, through neoliberalism um, and a kind of like a coming together of forces, the military industry complex, um, the, uh, uh, you know, the corporates, the uh, pharmaceuticals and the, just the people who are not thrown out of government when government turns over as well. There's, you know, a lot of civil servants there that have um, maintained their positions there for, you know, many, many years. And, and um, so there is, and you will see that in the statistics that the will of the people is not being enacted by the voters in the US anymore. Uh, the, you know, there's a, a great little video that, that I name. I, I can't remember the name now, but like it shows, you know, there was stats that really, uh, if the American people want something, that doesn't mean they're going to get it. They've got like a coin toss whether or not that will actually happen. But if people over a certain amount, you know, the, the top uh, 1% uh, want something, then that will be enacted in a very normal way. Uh, in a way that that we should see in in a democracy. So, in effect, we're being ruled by money, uh, and, and and not just America, but the planet uh, through trade agreements and things like that. Then uh, there's this powerhouse of people who actually dominate everything. So that's the deep state, and there's many names for it. Now, the deep state's not one that. Uh, my readers like that much because it sounds all oogly boogly and um, like you know there's you know, people out there in Bohemian Grove and and singing and dancing to Satan and stuff. It's nothing to do with that. It's nothing like that. There are just people who whose will is being enacted over the planet because they have a lot of money and it, this is a game of monopoly. They've won, but we haven't stopped playing yet, um, and they're still. They're actually uh, driving us towards human extinction, and that's my problem. If they were benevolent dictators, eh, maybe, but they're not. We're we're going straight towards a climate chaos. Uh, we're going towards World War Three. That their agenda is very clear, and it is not pro-human. It's very anti-human. Uh, so we need to stop this. We need to actually arrest this in its tracks and um, bring back the the will of the planet to the will of the people. Absolutely. So yeah, no, I think that's a that's a great explanation. And you you uh, wrote an article recently about how Donald Trump, you, you said he was neutered by the deep state because he he ran as this anti-establishment candidate. And even though he had a, a lot of egregious domestic policies internationally, there were some good things about Donald Trump, like he was non-interventionist with respect to Syria. But now that he gets in office, all of a sudden he's bombing Syria. Um, you know, during the campaign, he said, I love WikiLeaks, and now he's okay with Julian Assange being arrested. So you kind of talk about how Donald Trump has given in to the deep state. Um, 
why do you think this is? I mean, do you think it has to do specifically with money? Um, uh, why is it that Donald Trump, just within the span of three months, has already given in? I don't know, and I don't know if it matters, <laughs> because I don't know how they do this, but they do it every time, um, and and we just had to make sure that we knew when it had clearly happened. Um, like, so there was, and Syria for me was the big tipping point. That was that was a huge part of his campaign, but we also saw how the uh, the liberal establishment had wedged him on that issue, um, and had you know regular Democrats like screaming for him to attack. Russia, like, you know, or show us, show us you will attack him or you're weak, you're Putin's puppet and stuff. I don't know why you do that to a narcissist. They know that he, you know, they, they went through the whole uh, election knowing that he was a narcissist and, and prone to, they, they were worried about him going to war and then they actually goad him into it, which I found really weird. But anyway, I don't really know how they do it, um, but the important thing is that it is done. And I think the Julian Assange thing was especially creepy. Like, he said that he didn't even know that that was the story. He didn't know that that's what was happening. And um, and when the journalist asked, you know, well, how do you feel about that? He's like, yeah. I felt like a horrible, like, you know, like a downtrodden, abused wife who's like, oh, I don't care. You know, just give me my Zoloft. I... <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's not there anymore he's not there anymore in a very real way and it's spooky so um you know i had a secret hope that uh maybe uh he could like come in like a wrecking ball he did do some things uh in the beginning that looked very uh optimistic to me uh but now he's gone he's gone so uh so there's that yeah and and i think you're mentioning the tpp probably too that was one great thing that um, he did immediately. He basically declared the TPP dead on arrival when he was elected. And I think a lot of us progressives and anyone who was on the alt-right, I mean, anyone who's more protectionist in their economic policy was celebrating this because, you know, the TPP would have been a complete corporate takeover of trade. Yeah. It was a disaster. Now, one thing that is is really concerning to me, and, and I could tell that by reading your articles, it's concerning to you as well, is just how you see this alignment between uh, neoliberals and neoconservatives. So you see the left wing and the right wing kind of coming together to push war and, like you said, go Trump into war. Um, and part of this, I think, is, you know, the media. You talk about media bias a lot and how they manufacture consent. Um, and I wanted you to kind of explain how it is, you know, in your view, that the media is really doing this. I mean, we can use Rachel Maddow as an example, how she's basically went from being someone who was relatively firebrand progressive to someone who is just in lockstep with the establishment and who seems hellbent now on escalating tensions between the United States and Russia. So why do you think people don't question the mainstream media as much as they, they should? I'm not sure why they don't. Um, other than there's this kind of respect for authority that we're bred, you know, from childhood. We're, we're taught to respect authority and respect voices of authority. And when you have a voice of authority telling you these things, um, for most people that's overwhelming and they just take it on as truth. So I think that's kind of locked in from an early age. Why Rachel Maddow, you know, goes from a firebrand to, to a puppet, um, that's a very complicated, like, you know, I've, cause, uh, like, I'm, 
I'm from a line of journalists. I grew up in newspapers when I was little and um, and I saw my dad and my grandpa go through this. There's a process of wearing down mm-hmm. in the mainstream media um, and it's just, you know, if you have a kids and you have a mortgage and stuff like that, you end up paying the piper um, or just dropping off the radar. Um, so... And I think, yeah, we just know, look, every soul has a price and apparently it's about $7 million a year. (laughs) So, yeah, and it's disappointing. Um, And it's probably money. It's hard for me to to understand why it would be just money Uh, and social status. And um, also a lot of people um, just do it because... To step outside the mainstream narrative is to make yourself look foolish. You will embarrass yourself. You know, when I talk about the deep state, I'm entering into territory where people go, ooh, you know, tinfoil hat, ooh. Um, When it's a very real, provable thing, um, but that's what they do. They set up these kind of little shame walls where we we can't talk outside the little boxes that we, you know, Noam Chomsky said, you know, you set up parameters and have a very lively debate between them. But once you step outside of that, uh, then you you get shunned. And that's they've been very careful about doing that, I think. the uh, uh, And that's not just, you know, that's a process of advertising and everything. We, we're... we're <laughs> we're made small by a lot of things um and so you know when you're not only struggling with your your politics and thinking this is not right i don't like this but then you've got the rest of the world telling you that you're fat or you're ugly or you're not like tall enough or you're like there's all these other things going on trying to keep us very small and very mute like little animals frozen in fear so yeah it's a, it's a very complicated topic but i I think all we need to know is the effect it's having and what the medicine is. And I think the medicine is going towards embarrassment. Just saying it. Just say it out loud. And if people can't handle it, then they drop off. And But you will attract other people. Be a siren for truth, you know. Say the truth and just keep saying it. Be relentless about it. And the more of us can do that the more of a consensus we'll build because we're all pointing at the same thing we're all pointing at the emperor going there's no clothes there um and that will become the main narrative see all that the mainstream has got over us is that they can collectively kind of create this this network of a narrative that we we can't breach you know we they if they all agree with each other then the voices of authority are telling us the same thing um, but our little secret thing is that if we just keep pointing at truth, then together we start gathering, you know, they, we will attract others who are also doing that, and then our, our voice will be the loudest voice in the room, and that's my big hope. And that's where I think we're headed, and that, that's why I, we can't lose. I mean, depending on whether we blow ourselves up first or not. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's my one little fear. But uh, right. in the end, we can't Truth will always win it. It, it will. Uh, but we just—we've got to be really brave and courageous and go against uh, the um, what 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 we're being told all the time that um, is right and true, and we we need to say. Right, and and I think you're one of the people. Like, I want to commend you for that because you're one of the few journalists in the country that is speaking out against this Russian hysteria narrative 
because you're one of the few people who can see, and I'm surprised it's not, you know, more widespread than more people can see how dangerous it is to be saber rattling against another nuclear power, to be trying to push someone who, like you said, they warned, the Democratic establishment warned us that Donald Trump, he's unfit to be president, he's a narcissist, he has an ego. They're trying to push him into a conflict with Russia, and it's really scary. So I wanted to ask, and I know I'm asking you to psychoanalyze different aspects of government and employees, but I just wanted to pick your brain because I think you have such a, a, an interesting perspective on this that's just, you know, really enlightening. So I wanted to ask you about the Russian hysteria. So I want to know why you think the Democratic Party is doing this. Do you really think it's a part of them trying to do damage control and have some other explanation as to why Hillary Clinton lost besides her just being completely incompetent and running a terrible campaign? Um, or do you think this really is about the deep state taking over and trying to push us into war? Well, actually, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I started off when they first came out with that. I laughed. I thought it was hysterical. I thought it was really funny. Um, and maybe because I don't have in my kind of makeup like a fear of Russia. <laughs> um you know, I, yeah, I thought it was really, really funny. And I was, I kind of dismissed it as them just trying to go, oh, look over there, look over there, look over there. Uh, and they're great at doing that. They, they create a narrative where uh, they point at someone else and say exactly what they've been, they've been doing. So they had been election rigging. All right, look over there. Those guys are rigging our election. Um, it's a very simple tactic used by, uh, uh, abusive people all over the world, abusive and manipulative people all over the world, and we have a little collection of them in the in the Washington D.C. consensus, and that's what they do. The person who pointed out first that this was really dangerous was Glenn Greenwald, and he came in and was like, "This is not going to go well." Um, and I think he was more onto the kind of background. Uh, well, I think I think what happens is. We all have fears and triggers and things like that, and they all stem from trauma from a long time ago. And so if you've been a little kid who was shoved under a desk and, and uh, under air raid signals uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, you will have latent fear about that happening, and, um, and, and you will have many defence systems. And I think he was... I mean, he didn't say it in that terms, but he was right that, that the Russia, Russia-phobic switch was flicked on. And I do think that was probably meant. Uh, so I, I think it was twofold. It, it, it helped them deflect from the, the DNC leaks. Um, quite effectively, we're still not really talking about it. It's in the news at the moment because they're trying to dismiss the uh, trial, but it's, you know, very muted. Only really we would know about this going on. It's hardly mainstream. Um, so they did a really good job of that. Uh, but, look, they've been trying to to create this, this consensus for a war with Russia for quite a while when you look back. Um, so, yeah, I do think it was meant um, and it was very effective. And uh, I see now that they've kind of pulled the switch off Trump and the Trump-Russia Trump, um, thing. They were trying to get him impeached on that idea that he was with the Russians, which is actually bad news. You know, this means that, that it's done its job. They've blackmailed him into, you know, 
capitulating and doing exactly what they want with this threat that he would be seen as weak and Putin's puppet if he didn't. So that's, uh, yeah, to see that die is actually really disappointing. Um, I, I mean, I railed against it, uh, but I didn't want it to die this way. So uh, there's still people, you know, who are uh, really gung-ho on it and, and think that it's the pathway to impeachment. It never was. <laughs> it never was. Right. Um, and so now it's just a distraction for them uh, and they'll probably keep that going for a little while. Um you know, as, as long as they can distract people, they're happy. That, that, um, that's such a great point that you make, especially about the distraction, because, I mean, we see Debbie Wasserman Schultz tweeting out about how Russia rigged the election. And the irony the irony is overwhelming to me when I see her, of all people, because why did you step down, Debbie? You stepped down because you rigged an election. So it's just, it blows my mind, honestly. And I think that really what we're kind of seeing here is, I don't know if the left lost its mind or if they've just been led astray by the establishment, but you you wrote a phenomenal piece about George W. Bush and how all of a sudden he's this normal president. He's not a war criminal who should be in jail right now. He's normal. He, you know, the, the establishment, the media, they're trying to normalize him. He was on The Ellen Show. And so, you know, you responded to a meme basically saying, uh, you know, with George Bush posing the question, do you miss me? And your response was, fuck no. Because this is someone who, I know that Donald Trump you know, seemingly he's more crazier than George W. Bush. And, you know, give him time. We'll see if he's going to be a worse president. But George W. Bush was one of the worst presidents in American hi history, certainly the worst in modern history. So why is it that we're going, why do you think it is that, you know, the left is going so far to demonize Donald Trump that they're even, even trying to normalize someone as reprehensible as George W. Bush? Well, they're normalising neocons. That's what they're doing. They're normalising war. They've brought the whole that whole little posse of vagina hat wearing uh, liberals into into being pro war. Can you believe that they are now the pro war faction? That's amazing to me. Like these are these are not pro war people. I don't know how they're you know, they, they're making this work in their head, but now they're cheering on uh, this Syrian strike uh, and the further conflict that's going on there. And um, it's just amazing <laughs> to me how, how adeptly they do this. Um, and I think the word news churn is a very interesting one because I think that's what, what we need to notice here is that they can tip you on your head just like you're in a milk churn. You know, they they just keep churning you around and one day you'll be like pro-war and the next day you'll be anti-war. One day you'll be pro-war. And the, yeah, with that, the, um, with that kind of like churn situation, they are making heroes of Dick freaking Cheney and, you know, John McCain. They, they became their kind of, you know, Oh, it's really tragic. I'm sorry, Mike. It really hurts. It hurts my body. <laughs> so, yeah. Democrats use, you know, the reluctance of progressives. And they basically told us, they said, you know, how can you guys not be on board with this Russian narrative if even someone who is conservative like John McCain is on board? Why would he be on board with that? Why would John McCain, of all people, want to get behind, you know, saber-rattling against Russia? It couldn't possibly be that he wants to invade every single country on the planet, right? I mean, it makes me feel like I'm going crazy. You know, I don't know if it's the same for you. 
Oh, this is, you know, and that's, I think that's what they want to do to us. They want to turn us crazy. They want to make it, you know, the people who are seeing this and going, hang on, I just don't, I'm not in touch with reality. If that's what they think's going on, then, and, and if you're isolated, see, this is the internet. This has kind of joined us all up. And now we're, we're able to say, hang on, that's really weird. <laughs> like, so <clears throat> we can actually... <laughs> We can actually say, no, the emperor really doesn't have any clothes on, does he? He doesn't. I've been looking, I've been watching, and that's definitely his tokli, and it's just hanging out there. So, yeah, I think it's very important that we, we keep talking about it, we keep pointing it out, we keep pointing out the weird things, especially about um, John McCain. That was just tragic. That was just tragic. Like, how do you... How do you not see that he has his own agenda? And they had a very clear agenda for many, many years now, and that he hasn't changed, you have. Like, suddenly you're sidling up with a warmongering neocon and calling yourself the resistance. Um, like, how do you look at across the barracks, you know, and see see there's Hillary Clinton, Neera Tander, like, you know, there's John McCain, Dick Cheney, George W. Bush, here I am standing, viva la resistance! <laughs> <laughs> how do you not kind of step back and go oh my god maybe i'm on the wrong side of this um but people don't it's really weird and they 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 affectionately kind of you know meme them up and stuff and i, I saw it happening with george w bush a little bit earlier than that too they talked about his you know, paintings of his feet. Have you ever seen his paintings of his feet? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're very funny and kind of cute, but also, like, they're, they're, they're the works of a man with serious dementia. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he's not someone you should trust the opinion of, and you never should have. We know that now. Yeah. Terrible, terrible instincts, like, or whatever he was doing. Like, yeah. Right. He's a murderer. <laughs> it's that simple. He should be in jail right now. And you made such a great point. I wanted to point out in one of your articles, the same one about Bush. You said if George Bush did, um, or if another country's leader did what George Bush did, the United States would have did regime change in that country. That perfectly illustrates, I think, just the hypocrisy and how we're not able to get out of this bubble and see how the world views us, I think. It's it's really, it's difficult to me because, you know, we, we view, I you know, I don't know if you caught the same thing from the mainstream media about how when they were kind of goading Trump on to intervene more in Libya, or excuse me, in Syria after he bombed them, the whole notion was that, you know, this was a humanitarian move. We had to, we had to help them out. We had to come to their rescue when we're the only ones really that see ourselves as the heroes here. When, you know, if you, if you pull people around the world, they think the United States is a destabilizing force. They think that we're monsters because we're constantly bombing other countries. Um, so it's incredibly frustrating, and it really feels as though we're like one of the few who, you know, our eyes are open, and we see everything that's going on, and in the process, even though we know what's going on, it makes us feel crazy because everyone else is kind of uh, joining up to push this same narrative. And this is kind of getting to a different uh, subject, but I had to ask you about it. So you referred to Peter Dow. Um, you said that <laughs> he's someone who's akin to a royalist. Um, can you explain what that is to um, all the American viewers who, who aren't really um, familiar with that term? All right. A royalist, you know, being an Australian, um, so we're a little kind of outpost of, of England still. We, we, we have not a republic here. We, we, we're still part of the Commonwealth or whatever. Uh, and there is a, 
uh, yeah, it, it's a like it's a pejorative here. To be called a royalist is to be called someone who kind of like brown noses the power structure of the British royal family here. And Peter Dow really reminds me of those guys. You know, there's this uh, there's this great quote from Menzies, and I always fuck it up. I'm not exactly sure how to. You know, I won't get it right. But um, Menzies was our prime minister for years and years and years, long, long time, no term limits. Anyway, uh, <laughs> and he, he was a, a big royalist. He really loved them. And he quoted this 17th century poet. Um, <laughs> and I think the line is, um, oh, my God. I did but see her passing by and I will love her till I die. <laughs> that's the impression I get from Peter Dow. He's just all, oh, yes, 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 Queen, Queen. Um, Queen Hillary. Queen Hillary, yeah. He's a very interesting character, you know, like when you look at, at what he's done in his life and stuff, he's a, he's a really interesting guy and he's obviously decided that, that uh, Hillary is his queen. And so there's no, there's no critical thinking there. There's no uh, perhaps she should be the leader or perhaps she should not or whatever. She's just the queen and that's that. You just love her. You adore her. You deify her. And he really does deify Hillary. Uh, and I think there are a lot of people like that um, who who really don't see past, you know, the, the fact that it was her turn. That really resonated with Democrats. It's her turn. That's, what a ridiculous slogan. Um, they they it, floated that as a real slogan. This is a you know yeah. it's out in the book shattered. They honestly floated that as a slogan. Yeah, and it tested well. <laughs> that hurts. Isn't that weird? I didn't know about that part it's of it. Stories to me. Yeah, it's oh. her turn. Um, hang on. I thought this was a democracy. <laughs> a republic. Like <laughs> she's waited patiently, guys. It's it's time for her to be the president. Come on. Oh, it it hurts so much. It hurts. so yeah, but there is this weird, you know, royal family type thing going on. And when you look back in time, hardly anyone of the presidents has, they're all related. Right. There is a kind of an underground kind of uh, genetic uh, uh, lineage going on there. Um, and that's not strange conspiracy or, you know, like people meeting in black doors or whatever. That's just money. Money mm -hmm. does that. The, the people who had a lot of money came over from Britain and then they set up shop and stuff and then they, they owned slaves and stuff and then they they, they got the, the – there was no such thing as white people and black people when they were, you know, slave owners and stuff, but then they decided to make that division and get them fighting each other. Um, and they've just been playing us off ever since. And that's that's the thing. They will The divide and conquer has kept us uh, fighting each other and not looking to where the actual power structure is. But I think the – the times that we're facing right now, you know, human extinction is imminent. Uh, a lot of people are starting to go, all right, hang on. <laughs> Who can flip this switch and, and, and how do we change this? And I think we've seen, you know, over the past 10, 15 years, people trying to flip switches and going, all right, well, we'll, you know, we'll just do something about climate change. Hang on, we can't seem to do anything about that. We'll just get rid of oil. Oh, hang on, we can't seem to do anything about that. And we've got to the point where the will of the people is so so obviously enslaved, imprisoned, and not heard that uh, that that people are really starting to look for well, who's if we're 
if we're not being heard, then who is being heard? And I think that's really important. Right. Now, I wanted to ask you, um, um, do you think that this kind of political awakening, it, do you think it was something that was catalyzed by Bernie Sanders? Or do you think we were kind of slowly building? Because I think we kind of saw a little bit of it with Barack Obama, but I don't think the floodgates were opened until Bernie ran when, you know, the people who voted for Obama, like myself, were just completely frustrated with him. And even though his, you know, his slogan was hope, I felt hopeless after I elected Obama because someone like him who ran that, you know, progressive hopeful campaign completely backstabbed us. So do you think that this is a new thing or do you think there's kind of like a gradual build up to it? Well, I think that was the point. I think, I think uh, he ran on hope. Um, but we know from, from all the emails, uh, you know, he had, he basically handed over all his appointments to Citigroup. Um, and this is in 2008, you know. This is just after the bankers have destroyed everything uh, and he hands it over pretty much to the, like, so uh, he, he was saying all this hope and change stuff while doing the exact opposite. Right. Um, and I, I think maybe that that was the point. The, the point was to just strip us of hope, like just get everyone to go, right, we can do this, we can do this, and then just, ugh and go into despondency, disappointment, despair, and just roll over, never try again. Bernie turns up and he ignited the hope again and he ignited the hope on a really big scale. I think people could hear in the resonance of his voice that he was he was really speaking from from the guts, you know, he's got such a gutsy voice, from the guts of the planet. And um, look, I don't know if hope can be killed. I, I think that's what they, they're trying to do. And mm-hmm. they, they, they definitely got some ways away with Barack Obama. But, um, yeah, I, I, I do think that he woke up, everyone, or at least... <clears throat> No, that's actually not true. I think a lot of people were awake but had no one, like, looked around the political spectrum and went, well, this is not going to change. All I can do is, uh, you know, be good to my friends and family and and make it as nice a life as I can for myself and smooth the pillow on a dying world, basically. So a lot of people who had come to the acceptance that nothing was actually going to change were the ones who went, whoa, this dude, um, okay, what have we got to lose? Let's, let's back him. Let's go in, all in, all in, all in. And there was this sense of just all in um, from a lot of people, like uh, especially among the, like I was in the Facebook Bernie groups and there was just this, you know, people were, and this is so destroying to me, especially now this DNC thing is coming up in the courts, people really did go all in and mm. they, their, their twenty seven dollars came from from coins, you know, like there was people living out of their own car, like who were donating to the Bernie campaign, and to it's so infuriating to think that that the DNC could just suck all that money up and then say, ah, well, you knew it was rigged anyway. That's 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 what happens. Like, it's just a political promise. Uh, like, no one says we ever have to keep it about the impartiality of the um, primary. I mean, how... Right. <laughs> like, how galling is that? That is 
infuriating uh, when people are thrown in everything towards this guy. So, yeah, I I really keep fighting for them, you know, Uh, as as much as anything else. This really has to change. And the the situation in America particularly, uh, like domestically, is tragic. Uh, You know, people are living just on a knife's edge, like an illness could push them over into homelessness. And that's just not... (laughs) We were born on this planet as humans, as animals. You know, we have as much right to to the resources as the bird in the sky. Mm-hmm. There's no uh, the, the, this money arbiter that decides whether or not you live or die is just wrong. It is wrong, um, right. and it's psychopathic. And to allow it to continue uh, to the death of our species, it it has to be stopped. Right. It's 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 a virus. It's just it's disgusting. Um, so I take up too much of your time but um if you want to before we go can you um um tell my viewers where they can find you where they can read your work and how they can support you because i know you have a patreon page as well right yeah i have a patreon page so that's um caitlin johnston just one word patreon.com slash caitlin johnston and uh i'm on Newslog. i'm on medium i dipped my toe in there into the share blue of medium i didn't I had no idea but uh like I was, I'm very much an alien in a strange world there. Um, so, yeah, uh, yeah, and my Facebook page I'm really active on, um, which is Caitlin A. Johnston, and it's, uh, Twitter as well. I love Twitter. Me too. It's, it's kind of addicting. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. It really is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, hey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sorry? Oh, go ahead. Uh, Twitter is important. They're all important. Get on there. Like if you're seeing these things, get on there and speak and just as loud as your voice can can be heard, just say the things. You're right. They're wrong. Keep saying it. Keep saying it. Keep saying it. Don't worry if you're getting pushback. Don't worry if you get mocked or, you know, like that's not the point. Just keep saying it um, and get on as many platforms as you can fit in, you know, in well maintaining your your daily job and and washing and eating and stuff like that that's also <laughs> definitely just speak with conviction well thank you yeah. so much for coming on caitlin um it's been great big fan of your work everyone please go check out uh caitlin's work um and support her on patreon as well because much like independent you know uh youtubers uh she is a um reader funded journalist which i think is outstanding uh so thank you so much caitlin no worries thank you mike Well, that is the end of the episode. Hopefully it wasn't too saddening. But look, if anything, don't be sad. Get angry. And let's all work together to make sure we fight for healthcare, we fight for net neutrality, and we get it done together because it is possible. So before we end the episode, what I want to do is take the time to thank all of the individuals that decided to sign up to become Patreon or PayPal contributors. And look, the reason why I individually acknowledge each new sign up is because i i think that you are doing such a good thing for you're really saving the show and when i say saving the show you're literally saving the show because i just got my adsense payment from youtube and we are making less now than when we made when the show had 3000 subscribers and a lot less views not even kidding um so it, it's very 
It's very important now that if you support independent media, not just us, that you support us through Patreon, even just the buck or two, really makes a huge difference. So this week, I want to thank A Bit of Anarchy, Adriana Nieto, Adrian Byers, AF, Alexandre LaChapelle, Amireus Ahmed, Andre Kyle Morgan, Andrew Irwin, Aki Totten, Ashley Hudson Staben, Brian Grueling, Caesar the Master Chief Perez, Charles Miller, Chris Allen, Christine N., Christopher Hartford, Clay Raymond, Cloud Madness, Cole Shores, Daniel Gutierrez, David Larson, David McGann, David Schwinn, David Topher, David Vilela, Dennis Shoemaker, Donna Collins, Eben Kim, Eric David, Foster Petrie, Gary Worrell, G. Carlin Disciple, George Stanton, Heiko, Ishmael Hala, Jacob Torrey, Jacqueline A. Booth, Jake Ketchum, James D.G., James Shields, James Wilson, Jared the Guy, Jason King, Javes Vizia, Jerry T., Jerry Watts, Jody, Julie Edwards, Justin Carpani, Justin Diaz, Cameron Solari, Karen Grice, Ken Jones, Kenneth Brock, Kirk and Patricia Williams, Christofferson Kakavikos, Levy Lapin, Lena Reynolds, Lisa Hillisland, Lois Ventura, Louise Sedano 3, M.E. Sky K, Mark Michelson, Mark Beedry, Mike Owens, Morwenna, Palem, Nancy Ramos, Nani Russo, Philip Byler, Preston Monty West, R3QQ, Rachel Rasmussen, Ray Chow, Richard Guest, Richard Yarnell, Ricky Bates, Roberta Van Fleet, Scott Hartgee, Sean Doherty, Sebastian Simon, Spiff, Tony Ansel, Tyler Hilliard, Vincent Diamato, Vladi Veselinov, Wenyi, and Willie. So again, thank you to each of these people um, for signing up to support us at a time when uh, it's really important that you do that. And again, if you can't support the humanist report uh, and only have $1 to spare to anyone else who's one of your favorite independent media people, then I would implore you to do that because right now it's very important. I mean, YouTube is cutting ads on many of our channels and without you guys, we would be in a whole world of hurt right now. I'm not making that up um so thank you listen thank you so much this this is incredibly appreciated and each and every single one of you uh you know your generosity is heartwarming i really mean that so that's the end of the episode um yeah let's go ahead and let's get to work <laughs> At, you know if this episode tells us anything we've got a lot to do we've got to fight trump on health care on taxes we've got to fight the fcc We've got our work cut out for us, but don't get sad, don't get demoralized, get angry. Because if we're angry, we get stuff done. And if you're angry, you're paying attention. So I will see you guys next week. Hopefully the tone of that show will be more positive. Hopefully we'll have some good news. But hey, we'll just roll with the punches and you know we'll take it. But we're gonna we're gonna make change. It's gonna happen. I feel it. 